Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 950 with Chef Jarrett Steber. It was awesome. My, my first shift, uh, one of the dudes who'd worked there for a long time, this like grizzled old dude. I, don't, I can't remember his name. It was like Pedro or Rafael or something like that. He'd been with them for a long time. And he was, I don't know, maybe like 50, 60, like kind of older dude. And he was like, you want to work in this industry, you got to be tough. And then he just like dipped most of his fingers like up to the second knuckle in the fryer. Oh, and I was just like, oh, my God. Was this God. before he turned it on or like at noon? Well, that's what I found out afterwards. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't on. He was like, it's not on, man. I'm not crazy. Come on, relax. But I was just that like, just gives, oh, yeah. shit. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it was that. And like my second weekend, I dropped a 22-quart Cambro of barbecue sauce on the floor in the walk-in. So, you know, I got all the good restaurant stuff out of the way oh early. My goodness. Are you ready for It Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60-day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone fred langley ceo of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the restaurant system pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants fred will teach you recipe costing cards guidance in your books for accounting cash control sales forecasting checklist budgeting for the entire year scheduling for profit it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest chef owner of little bear Jarrett steber Jarrett, are you feeling unstoppable today despite the restaurant industry's best attempts yes i am <laughs> yeah, i love it man great way to get this thing started and i'm, I'm looking forward to your success quarter mantra what do you got for us today trust your gut trust your trust gut. your gut why is that where we're going today why we're starting off well, I've kind of always followed my gut with where I wanted to work. I trusted my gut when I was 15 and thought it would be a good idea to get into this industry. And I've kind of trusted it ever since about where to work. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing when I started my own business either, but figured I would just go ahead and trust my gut the whole time and try to make the right decisions and things that felt like they were good and natural to me and fit sort of a guiding principle uh, set of ethics, you know, and... uh so far, it's worked. So yeah, I don't know. you know, I think people don't realize that that gut feeling is actually your brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like we think, yeah. oh, don't trust. I mean, no, like that's that's the low road of your brain. It's tied to our organs. We feel like it's just like it's a, like the more primal part of us. That's yeah. the subconscious that's paying attention to all this little data, and it's getting stored away in the background, and it's communicating to us, and it's and it's telling us no, based off of my my years of experience paying attention, this does not feel like a good thing or this does feel like a good thing trust it what's yeah. going through your mind yeah i mean i i agree with that i think like you for the majority of decisions you really make them almost immediately but sort of talk yourself out of things or you know go the roundabout way of 
taking extra time to think through things sometimes, but usually you've kind of immediately made the decision and it's just a matter of whether you kind of admit it to yourself or not yeah. quickly. Another science that people are studying, there's like this weird stuff going on right now where there's actually bundles of nerves like in your gut and in your heart that I don't know a lot about it, but there's information that suggests that there's actually like like information coming after us. Sorry. Don't get to ruin that you're good. beautiful take. No, no, we got a warning. There's going to be two more timers between now and the end of this uh, interview. But this is a restaurant business podcast that's recorded that's right. in restaurants and we're rolling with the punches. So uh, don't even worry about that. So we were just talking about the bundles, like mm-hmm. how your, your, your body communicates. So you get these feelings and you can trust them. Trust your gut is how we started off this conversation. And speaking of starting things off, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Well, we can go back, I guess, to the the origin story, for lack of a less uh, douchey comic book sort of term. But um, I started when I was fifteen. Um, was playing music and you know, kind of getting into that side of things. I started watching Emerald Live on TV, and he had this band, and like kind of was high energy with cooking and had the music. So I just started watching it and kind of messing around, and uh, ended up reading the late great uh, Tony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Great book, which, you know, kind of tells it like it is in the restaurant industry. And that it, book didn't scare you away? It didn't scare me away. I mean, <laughs> it did a little bit, you know, yeah. I was like 15 years old and not an opium addict. So thinking about like all the opium <laughs> addicts in the industry and yeah. things like that, was like a little bit, you know, concerning. But uh, overall, like, I think that's what made the book so great was that it didn't hold back anything, but it also kept the kind of like the zeal for the industry that people who really believe in it feel. So, you know, it's kind of like this sucks in a lot of ways, but it's also the greatest thing you can do. Yeah. What resonated with me in that book is that like, it's also just where people can be people themselves and they don't have to put on a face to go to work. Exactly. They are who they are. And there's a lot of mis fits in this industry mm-hmm. and i love misfits dude i don't know about you but i, I get along with the misfits uh i always have and um it, it's i don't know like there's this idea of professionalism like i think there's a good balance to be found like where you want to respect the people you work for you want to show up to do your job but you can also be yourself personality wise right yeah yeah that's exactly right and in a restaurant that's kind of a hard balance to find in some ways but it is part of it like if you stayed out really late after a shift one night and you're out drinking or whatever that young cooks do, you still got to show up on time for your shift the next day. And if you're hungover, you just sweat it out during the shift and you figure it out. Like that's part of the professionalism, not, you know, being rude and, uh, sexist and, you know, bigoted and all that kind of stuff to your coworkers, like learning how to get along with people from all walks of life. There's, you know, some people like, I was a 15 year old kid from a, you know, upper middle class suburb working in kitchens with, you know, a Guatemalan dude who was sending all of his paycheck back to his family, you know, and trying to scratch a living that way and everything in between. So you have to learn to get along and find a middle ground. And I think it's, you know, important life skills in a lot of ways. Um, and that was kind of eye opening for me working in, in the industry. I, I basically just went to a restaurant called Alon's that's like a market bakery sort of thing. And the original location was in Virginia Highlands, Morningside kind of area. And uh, my dad was a surgeon at Emory. Uh, so we would go on Saturday mornings, kind of at a tradition. My sister and I would go and make rounds with him. So we would basically just like sit around with the nurses and kill time for an hour or two while my dad did all his little checkups on everybody. And after that, we would go and have. Uh, kind of like a late lunch or, or sorry, late breakfast, early lunch at a lawn. So we kind of had a relationship with them. And uh, I just asked the owner one day, I was like, is it okay if I come and, you know, shadow your chef for like, you know, just one day, I kind of want to see what it's like. And they put me on the schedule for the next weekend. And I just kind of 
kept they showing you, up. Right? They weren't. No, I was 15. Oh, no. oh, I was, right. You know, this is like... You have to be 16 to work in a kitchen at this point? You have to be 16, or at least I don't know what it is now because yeah. I don't really hire 16-year-olds yeah. very often, but I know you used to have to be 16 to like fill out the paperwork and be like a legal, yeah. you know, yeah. employee. So, um, and also, you know, there's like restaurant industry, we call it a stage. Like it's a pretty common thing to do. You want to learn from another restaurant, you go and work for free. Cause it's kind of like, you know, budgets are tight for restaurants. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure it probably was happening in the back of a lawn. Is that what the it, owner's name? Yeah. Yeah. It's like sweet. <laughs> yeah. He was just like, all right, cool. I mean, yeah. I didn't know I was young. Yeah, I didn't but you know loved much, it but I loved probably it. Loved yeah. Excited. So was did you, like, what was that first experience like for you? It was awesome. My, my first shift, uh, one of the dudes who'd worked there for a long time, this like grizzled old dude. I don't, I can't remember his name. It was like Pedro or Raphael or something like that. He'd been with them for a long time. And he was, I don't know, maybe like 50, 60, like kind of older dude. And he was like, you want to work in this industry, you got to be tough. And then he just like dipped most of his fingers like up to the second knuckle in the fryer. Oh, frick. And I was just like, oh my God. Was this God. before he turned it on or like at noon? Well, that's what I found out afterwards. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't on. He was like, it's not on, man. I'm not crazy. Come on, relax. But I was just like, just holy yeah. shit. Oh my goodness. So yeah, it was that. And like my second weekend, I dropped a 22 quart Cambro of barbecue sauce on the floor in the walk-in. So, you know, I got all the good restaurant stuff out of the way oh early. My goodness. Uh, but eventually I kind of settled in. But yeah, it was fun. I, I ended up working pretty much my entire junior year so i worked through the whole summer i turned 18 after or were you at alon 16 sorry at alon's yeah Yeah. i turned 16 after having like worked a few weekends there uh alon gave me some cash thanked me for my time and asked if i wanted a job and then i signed the paperwork and started getting my first paychecks and i worked my whole junior year of high school every like friday after work saturday sunday went and worked there and my senior year of high school i was kind of focused on wrapping up school so i didn't work permanently at Alon's, but I did a couple of stages at a few other restaurants, former Joel, which was like, now it's local three, uh, but it was like a very, very egregiously expensive build out for a fancy French restaurant okay. originally. So at this point in your, like your, your timeline, are you committed to the restaurant industry? Are you saying this is my path? This is what I want to do. It was definitely going through my head. I still was, it was that or music basically. And it yeah. was kind of like, you know, I, I can do both and we'll, figure it out kind of kick the can down the road i'm where i'm gonna settle but it seemed like a way i could at the very least just have like steady work even if the pay sucked just to like have a paycheck while i worked on you know playing music so i ended up after my senior year of high school i went to orientation weekend at unc Asheville, north carolina uh got through the weekend and was like i'm not gonna do anything that i get a degree in here so i called my parents and was like i don't know what to do but this doesn't feel right I'm not going to do this. I don't At least you have the foresight and the self-awareness. At oh this yeah. Point. Because most kids don't. I know when I was in college, like I was, I went to school to become a commercial pilot, man. And like, oh, really? I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. And the, honestly, like probably after the first year, I was like wondering, is, is this my path? Is this what I'm meant to do? But I, I gotta be honest, man. I was afraid to be looked at as a failure. I yeah. was afraid to be somebody. I didn't want to quit. Cause I didn't want to be people to think that I was a quitter. So I stuck with it for four years yeah. and I got $200,000 yeah, in debt. Dude. Exactly. And it's all because of my pride, if I'm being honest. And that's yeah. the second buzzer. So we'll, we can pick up where we left off. Yeah. Go for it. So what just came out of the oven? Uh, that was the turnips actually. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the first one was for the big ones to cook most of the way. And then we put the smaller ones with them and finish off the nice, cooking. Nice. Nice. So, um, before the turnips came out of the oven, we were talking about, um, just money and yeah. like how we get in so much debt with school and like yeah. 
Yeah, dude, what's what's going through your head? I mean, it's kind of the same way with culinary school exactly. in a lot of ways. Because culinary school, people don't realize how expensive it is. Like a lot of trade schools, it's you know almost like close to an Ivy League education per year. Like yeah. you know, thirty or forty grand a year. I was, I guess, fortunate for lack of a less uh, usually like two years though, right? Yeah, because... I did. I did an accelerated program those eighteen months. Okay. But yeah, it's usually a two year so thing. You can get into like fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth yeah, of debt to go to work for a shitty kitchen pay afterwards. Yeah, like making you know, twelve to fifteen bucks wage. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is where you are. I mean, I guess you'd be lucky to do it in like California or something, where at least you get a higher minimum wage. Yeah, but your cost of living is ridiculous. Yeah, it all balances out. So yeah, balances out. Um, I mean, my, my grandfather had died a couple of years before I went to culinary school. So I had gotten inheritance money from him and it ended up being enough to cover culinary school and like a PA system for my band. And that was pretty much it. Nice. Um, so yeah, I used all of it, which, you know, down the road after years of working in restaurants for shitty pay, I would have loved to have had, you know, 45 grand of savings, but I also am glad that I didn't have 40 grand of student loan debt plus interest. So yeah. And people don't realize, and I, this is something I I try to echo often. I think the school system, uh, a lot of schools, at least when I was in school, I'm 36 years, 37 years old. Now when I was going through school, there was no option. No, you went to college Yeah, and that was the narrative. And I think it's starting to shift now. Um, but be really mindful that you do not need a degree to get a job in a restaurant. Um, and that that debt will keep you from taking opportunities in the future when you're just trying to figure out what vertical within the restaurant industry you want to get into. Yeah, take. I mean, I would encourage anybody just to go travel and get that experience and get that perspective and find your lane. For and, sure. And when you have, you know, a backpack full of debt on, it weighs you down. There's no room for your luggage. Yeah, you you're know? right. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And I, I mean, you you know, most 18 year olds don't even know what they what time they want to wake up in the morning, let alone what they want to do for the rest of their life. Yeah. I was fortunate that I had two things I was passionate about. And I was like, either of these would be fine with yeah. me for the rest of my life. But I'm, you know, one in a bajillion with that. Yeah. Um, so you went to UFC or sorry, UNC uh, at Asheville. You quickly realized that that wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you come back to Atlanta and get back to work in restaurants? So yeah. My parents were, they've always been extremely supportive of whatever endeavors, whether it was music or cooking, it was always like, take it seriously, try to treat it, you know, like a potential career path, do it well, don't shortcut anything and, you know, pay attention to it and we'll support you if it's what you want to do. So they were like, yeah, if you want to co- come back and you think that's right, like, okay, you know, we'll trust you and, and, uh, support it, but just get some sort of your money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause I don't want to waste four years yeah. of your money for this, you know? Yeah. And they were like, all right, that's fine, but at least get some sort of degree. So I went to Cordon Bleu and Tucker, Georgia. So did you take some time off or did you? No, I just went straight in basically. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I came, came home, like applied, got my shit together. We're like, you know, applying to culinary school yeah. is like shooting fish in a barrel for them. They yeah. accept anybody who wants to take on debt. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But at this point you're working, you're three years in the industry, maybe four years in the industry. Right? Yeah. It's like two, two, two and a half, something oh, like that. So you're off. That's right. Your yeah. Year. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, I, um, I definitely like had a leg up, I think, on a lot of the students in that regard, where it's like the basic knife skills and all those things like French mother sauces, like the stuff they teach you in the first few classes was like, you know, I've already yeah. been working in the industry. So I, I will say this about culinary school. I'm, I know I'm sitting here ragging on it, but at the same time, I will say that people who choose to go to culinary school, but they've been in the industry for say, for, say three, four, five years, maybe they're 22, 23, 24 years old. When they go to the CIA or the yeah. Port Blue, like 
they take that shit seriously yeah. and they get the most out of it, man. They squeeze that lemon for every drop it has. And what I mean by that is the networking and they show up. Mm-hmm. And when you show up to those schools, those professors will open the door for you. They will oh, yeah. connect to you. They will get you into, they will get your foot in the right. Yeah, doors. definitely. Yeah. It, it, it has its value for sure. But it was, uh, but most 18 year olds aren't thinking like that. Yeah. Especially if they haven't been working in the industry first. Yeah. And it was kind of a means to an end for me. So I was, well, I was in school. I worked, at um, a restaurant called Pura Vida, which is now closed. Hector Santiago is the chef owner. He has um, uh, El Superpan uh, now. I think they have a couple locations, but at the time, like it was just way ahead of its of itself for Atlanta. This is you know 2007 or something like that, and uh, he was doing like molecular gastronomy stuff peppered into the food. It was like. Puerto Rican where he's from Puerto Rico. So it's sort of Puerto Rican, a lot of like central American inspired, but also some kind of Basque Spanish inspired food tapas sharing stuff, which that as a format, even now in Atlanta is still kind of weird for people. Like it's still very much a meat and potatoes app entree city that like, it's getting better, but we're working on breaking diners out of kind of their old learned behaviors. But at the time, a place that just did tapas and had this like creative stuff where he was making like caviars out of other liquids and encapsulating things and, you know, just doing stuff that was way ahead of its time. It was a great restaurant and I learned a lot there, but, you know, it never really got its footing. Yeah. Um, it's in the space that's now Sweet Auburn Barbecue on North Highland Avenue. So, um, so during this time, what's the narrative in your head? What's the what what type of self-awareness do you have about what you who you are and where you want to be? I was still playing music pretty actively, but it was, you know, it was obvious that like day to day, week to week, I was going to be working in restaurants. So at that point, I was kind of assuming like I'm basically just going to be a restaurant employee for a while i had ideas for things i wanted to open one day if i was going to have my own place but it was always like there's still a chance for music i'll just keep playing and like maybe we'll catch a break we'll find the right person to listen to our music whatever but i think at that point i was slowly starting to realize that it was most likely going to be a career in cooking but there was always kind of the pipe dream like maybe i'll get to be a musician and but i don't know so I, at that point, though, I was definitely like resolving to the restaurant industry a little bit more yeah. mentally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I did a little bit of research. I saw that you were at a couple more restaurants. It seems like Empire State South was probably where you stopped and stayed the longest. Yeah. So I worked um, at the end of culinary school, uh, the internship that we needed to do at the end for the last credits, like a three-month internship in a restaurant. Uh, I went to work at Restaurant Eugene, which at the time, 2007, Atlanta, that was like one of the great restaurants of the city. It was like newer than Bacchanalia, a little bit more progressive and exciting. So I thought I'd, you know, go work there. Um, and after maybe a month or month and a half of being there, they had just opened Holman and Finch as well, right across the street. Um, and they had had some issues with their opening sous chef and ended up like letting him go. And some of his staff went that he had hired, went with him and they were in need of cooks in a hurry. So they basically took all like the young shitty cooks from restaurant Eugene who they didn't want to be working at restaurant Eugene anymore (laughs) and moved us all over to Holman and Finch. So I worked there for a a little while, a little over a year, year and a half, something like that. And I'd gotten to a point where I'd kind of worked like all the stations. I knew everything, you know, like how the operations worked. I could work any of the stations. I worked, you know, late nights. We started doing brunch. I worked the griddle station on brunch cooking like 7 million burgers in two and a half hours. Like all the, all the all the shit that comes with it 
Uh, and that's where I started working with Ryan Smith, who's now the chef owner of Staple House. He was doing charcuterie work in the morning um, when I first was like moving over to Holman and Finch. And I had never seen interesting charcuterie. We'd only done like terrible, bland, tasteless, decorative stuff in culinary school. Yeah. Um, so it was awesome to be exposed to like real deal, like European style, like good classic charcuterie. So I learned a lot from him about, you know, kind of getting started on learning some of that stuff. And then he took over chef de cuisine of both restaurant Eugene and Holman and Finch. And he was so busy at that point, like stretched between the two places. I wasn't working with him as much. So between that and one of the, I think the lead line cook left and I was hoping like, I've been here for a while. I know all the stations, maybe I'll get this promotion. And they hired somebody from outside. So I was like, yeah, I guess that's my time to find somewhere else to go. So I left and went to work at Abattoir, which was uh, a restaurant in the Star Provisions Network, Bacchanalia. Did you owners. have a conversation with them after you weren't promoted? Was there yeah. a reason? Did they give you a reason? They, I didn't talk to like the owners or management. I talked to my uh, like main sous chef and talked to Ryan. And it was kind of out of their hands a little bit. I think they just felt like I was young and inexperienced. Yeah. So it's I, like <laughs> I usually give my guests a heads up that I ask very personal questions. No, no, that's and the reason for that is because that's where we learn. That's yeah. it's through those lessons, through relationships that we learn. It's the, the stuff that we don't talk about because it's weird to talk about, yeah. right? You know, and our egos get in the way, and it's just hard to talk. But this is the kind of stuff that we need to learn. That like it's there's a lot of relationships, there's a lot of personal growth that takes place in the restaurant industry. So, like, did they give you good feedback? Did, was this a moment for to re- yeah. self-reflect and to grow personally? Yeah, and I, I, part of uh, one of the sous chefs too, who is the one of the opening sous chefs who had stayed on from the beginning, who hadn't gotten let go, um, who was pretty hard on me, but in like a good way because he knew there was potential there. You're and still I was young, young at this point yeah, I was too, right? eighteen. Yeah, so he he knew there was something there. You know, wasn't like abusive or anything, but was just like trying to get the best out of me. Yeah, you know, never taking shortcuts. Don't take a night off. Every dish has to be the best dish that you've made. You know that kind of mentality. And he left and moved to New Orleans to open his own thing. And he, you know, had the like courtesy to like pull me aside one day. It was like, let's go talk outside. And just was like, I want to let you know that I'm leaving, like, there's going to be another sous chef coming in, but, you know, just wanted to give you the heads up because we've been working together for a while. We have this personal relationship and like, you know, I want you to know things aren't going to change too much here. You can still feel comfortable even when I'm not around. And I thought that was a a really nice thing to do. And he gave me some pointers and like next steps to work on. And so I tried to take that to heart and worked hard on, you know, establishing, establishing myself there and showing that I could work any of the stations and be trusted. So it kind of felt like a little bit of a slap in the face when they hired somebody from outside after that. But I think a lot of it was like, you know, the, the owner, like chef owner wasn't, you know, heavily involved in day to day work in the restaurant. So, you know, from his perspective, it's probably like 18 year old kid, that doesn't sound like lead line cook. Let me hire somebody with like a bigger resume and so this give them is the going position. on almost fifteen years ago, right? This yeah, point. it's been a while. You know, point, you've yeah. grown a lot as a man. Like you're, you know, you actually have a frontal lobe now. You yeah, know, like exactly. congratulations. Thank so you. like reflecting, yeah, <laughs> reflecting back at that time, like, um, like, I mean, what advice would you have had for yourself knowing who you are today? Going back, like, what advice would you give yourself? I wouldn't have done anything differently. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that job should have been mine, and even if it shouldn't have been just feeling like it should have been yours and not getting it it's hard to overcome that you know so everything has an expiration date and you have to be aware of when it when it occurs um but from my perspective now as a proprietor i wouldn't have done that i would have promoted myself if okay. i had been you what's know, your which, what's your rationality for that 
because it's about showing the team that you believe in them. Like you mm. can't get the most out of your staff if you don't enable them to feel empowered. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. I can get behind that. Yeah. For so sure. It's kind of like you've been here. You deserve this. Like, you know, when you bring somebody from outside, like I feel like the only reason to really do that is if you need to like send a message to the staff to an extent, it's almost like a sports coach, like benching one of the better players during a losing streak or something to like break bad habits. Like, I feel like it's kind of a big shakeup. So it's usually like something's not working. The flow's not right. The structure's not right. Everyone's complacent, whatever. Like I'm bringing in a manager from outside, some fresh blood, doesn't know any of you, doesn't give a shit. He's not your friend. He's just here to run it or whatever. And like, you know, that's kind of why you do that. But I would much rather just be like, hey, you've worked with me for a while, like just for the loyalty alone you should get this job and we can work on making you, you know, what the position needs if you're not there yeah. immediately. So, so at this point in your story, you've been at, uh, from 2007 on, you're at, uh, Pura Vida, mm-hmm. uh, Eugene, uh, Holman and Finch. And that was where we left off. Yeah. Um, you got, I mean, just kind of zoom up to 30,000 feet without kind of getting into details. It's like, what were the next stops up for you along the way? So the next one was abattoir, which has now closed. It's, uh, Marcel is in space now over on the West side. Okay. Uh, and it was another like whole animal butchery concept that opened kind of after the success of Holman and Finch doing that. And I thought it'd be cool to keep, you know, learning more about butchery and charcuterie and awful cookery and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I went and worked there for a year. It was the hardest year of my life. Do you for know sure. what year it was when you started? 2010, I okay. want to say. Gotcha. 2010 to 2011, I think. Cool. I made it one year to the day and put in my notice. I never worked anywhere less than a year and didn't want to burn a bridge, especially with a company as Why powerful. Um, it was just brutal working there. Like the chef at the time was overworked and unhappy and miserable. Why never less than a year? Oh, never less. It's about maintaining relationships. Like people bounce around so much. That's an issue these days. Like everybody thinks like the rise of pop-ups, which I know we'll get into my pop-up days in a little bit, but with the rise of that and YouTube making, you know, videos to learn whatever you want available. Like people don't want to put the hustle in anymore. It's just like, they want to, immediately just have their own thing or we be live in, in charge. a transactional more more transactional society today oh for sure before. for you sure know, like give me my paycheck and that's all i want yeah and like yeah. i want to be in charge right away like i want to be the sous chef i want to have my pop-up i want to have my thing like just because you can make six dishes really well doesn't make you a great chef it makes yeah. you good at making those six things you do at your pop-up or whatever but yeah. like do you know how to butcher a flatfish no okay whatever like I, you know you need to learn these skills and it takes 10 12 years to really get proficient in all facets of the industry if you work at the right places that expose you to everything from scratch but now people's resumes like it looks like the eater 38 list and you're like how have you worked at six restaurants in the last two years like (laughs) i don't want to hire you because it's not worth the time and and like how do you have the like like the the gall to p- actually disclose that you've been at that many places in two years. Like, like, look at all these great restaurants I've worked. It's yeah, like, and to like, me, I see a bunch of places you couldn't get your footing in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I see exactly. They don't even. I don't, I don't know why we don't teach this to people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But that's also our. I think it's also our responsibility as the leaders in this generation mm-hmm. to say, hey, 
th- these are what we call values. Yeah. You know, like this is how you, this is how you reciprocate. Yeah. A yes. It's my responsibility to give you security and to give you what you need and help you progress. But th- it's a two way street. Yeah. You know, and I think that that that's also on our shoulders to educate the next generation too. You yeah. Know? Exactly. Uh, Cause they don't, they're only a byproduct of the world they live in. Right. Yeah. So they don't know any better at this yeah, point. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, okay. So a year, a at- year there, at abattoir yep and then uh well a year and a month i I went a year gave him a notice gave him a month and then went back to work at uh work for ryan smith at empire state south because he had taken over uh running that restaurant and um i just kind of like went and talked to him and was like i know this probably isn't a position you guys have and it's definitely not something you look like you're actively hiring but what you used to do at holman and finch where you worked in the mornings doing butchery and charcuterie can I do that here for you and like learn more from you about it? And he was like, yeah, fuck it. Why not? Let's like make yeah. it happen. You know? So it kind of squeezed me in and made a position for me. And then I worked there for about two and a half years doing butchery and charcuterie yeah. and a little bit of everything. I love what you did there though, but you, you didn't like approach him and say, Hey, can I have a job? You said, Hey, here's how I can be of value to you. Yeah. Here's how I can offer a solution for you in your life. I can take something off your plate yeah. so you can go focus on other elements. And like how ask yourself that question. How can I add value to the people I'm going to don't just ask, but offer. Right. You know, and that ended up working out very well for a while. I learned so much about butchery and charcuterie. I mean, just repetition alone. It's like I was breaking down an entire pig every week for two and a half years. You start to learn all the moves you need to make to do it quickly and efficiently and cleanly. And, you know, those are extremely valuable skills between that and, butchering all types of fish and breaking down primals of beef and whole goats and you know whatever and then making sausages making pates terrines curing things like making hams like country hams and prosciutto and speck and lomo and lanzino and fermenting salamis like you know it's just a great unique skill set to learn for a long time so you're definitely evolving as a chef during this time right but at what point are you saying to yourself i need to evolve as a business owner yeah it was not an intentional thing i had gotten to the point where towards the end of my tenure there like the food we were making at empire was so high end it was like really upscale creative fine dining by the end but the restaurant was huge how many seats give us an idea i don't remember the seats like exactly but on fridays and saturdays we would do like 300 to 350 covers okay so it was it was high volume for that type of food yeah yeah and and that doesn't really work it clashes like you just cannot produce technical food at that volume without compromising somewhere and usually, there's a reason why it's so expensive yeah and you it, need to it, make your profit somewhere you can't do it with the turns and volume no. you have to do it with the cost right yeah exactly and then on top of that too there's also a reason why all of like the fanciest three-star restaurants in the world for the most part are small mm-hmm. they're not 300 seat restaurants and so you know it just was like wearing on everybody but there was also like the staff there at the time was great like almost everybody that worked on the line in that PM shift uh, for, for Empire, like they're all now either their own restaurant owners or running other kitchens across the country, like pretty much everybody. Um, and even in the mornings a little bit like, cause I, by the end was working like, you know, 90 hours a week. So I was basically seeing like everybody who worked all the shifts during the day from the morning to the evening, everybody's off like doing their own things. 
which is great, but it also came with a lot of ego and swagger and, you know, alpha male posturing. And it became such a toxic environment by the end. Like everybody was so emotionally afraid from being tired and overworked, keeping up with things. And everybody was trying to compete with everybody else for like, you know, young cooks would come in and just get chewed up. I saw so many young cooks, especially like they get started on the lunch shift and then like maybe move to a couple of nighttime shifts and they would just get chewed up by this little like core of guys who'd been there forever that were just like ultimately insecure people with emotional problems like everybody in the restaurant industry yeah. and I don't need taking to, it out in bad ways. Exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't need to bring names to this. I don't, I don't want to get so specific that we're like calling people out, but like paint that picture of what was happening. So we, if we're seeing this in our own restaurant, we can be like, I know where this is going to lead. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's the constant shit talking and razzing, like every mistakes like made fun of and amplified. Everyone's ganging up hazing. on the one person. Yeah. It's like toxic hazing, you know? Yeah. And like, I get that you want people to be better, but there's a way to do it. You can pull them aside and be like, Hey, you know, you've had a rough shift today. Like I call them quicksand shifts. Like you start fucking up one or two things and the tickets just keep coming in. And next thing you know, it's like surfing and you're trying to catch the wave, but you're paddling behind it. Every single one of them versus the other shifts where it's like two strokes and you're off in the wave every yeah. single time. So it's like, all right, this is a rough night. Like, tell me from your perspective, like what can we do differently or what do you feel like? you know, cause it to get behind, like something we can do to help. Here's what I observed and what I can suggest that will help you for next time to yeah. avoid this happening. That's a little bit more how we approach it here. I mean, it's one thing that the, you want to have that, that, that constant pressure on people to evolve and you want to mm -hmm. hold people accountable to standards, but that's like the chimpanzee way of doing it. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah. the, exactly. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, it's like, that's what like monkeys do yeah. when, when they are unhappy with one of the other monkeys in the group, right? They, they're assholes to it. Right. And, that might work in the the jungle yeah. to like get people to like act the way they socially should be acting or whatever. But in a kitchen yeah. where you have that much pressure and you're you're trying to, to juggle all these things in a, a like a high pressure, high volume situation, what's going to happen to that person is they're you're just going to send them off this trajectory of emotional uh like their emotional like swells are going to come up and they're just going to go off in the wrong direction because they're not thinking about the job. Yeah. They're thinking about how much they want to use that knife to stab you. Exactly. You know? That's like, exactly right. So yeah. like you got to be mindful of that. So if you're not helping the situation when you yeah. do that. Yeah. And it was sad because there were so many cooks who came to learn because they were like, this is the best restaurant in Atlanta right now. And then they ended up having to tuck their tails between their legs and quit and they didn't get anything out of it. And it was frustrating because I was like, I know I have a lot to offer to teach people. I have a lot of experience and have learned to do a lot of things. And, the line cooks, you know, despite there being an overall culture that wasn't positive, they were all great cooks. So it was like, people should be learning from all of us here. They shouldn't be like getting deterred from continuing, you know? Yeah. And I think you might've said it, but just kind of echo what, what is the appropriate course of action when somebody's not holding up their station or not contributing or to the expectation we have for them? What, how do you address that? Yeah. I mean, I think you address it like, in a more private sort of way. It's like after shift, you know, or call them on a day off and like, let's talk. I mean, that happened to me at abattoir. I was struggling there because it was, there was no prep crew. So, you know, you're kind of responsible for everything on your station, but you couldn't clock in until three 30. So, you know, all of us line cooks were like getting in at 10 or 11 o'clock and working off the clock for hours and hours and hours just to try to set up our station and then staying after service off the clock prepping. And it was another different type of toxic culture in that way. But, you know, I was trying to keep up and still having issues largely from just being exhausted a lot of the time. And one of the days the chef pulled me aside and was like, 
hey, you know, we we like you. We know that you're motivated and you care about this, but the performance just isn't good enough. Like, I'm not firing you, but I'm letting you know that it needs to improve. And those are the things that, like, you know, I appreciate it and I try to do with my staff now. Like, if there's an issue, you have to at least talk to them about it first and give them a chance to fix it yeah. before just, you know, knee-jerk reaction. So what's the significance of pulling somebody aside to do it? I think it's about not embarrassing them in front of everybody else because, you know, it's it's personal. And, like, you want to say, yeah, it's just business. But when you do it in front of everybody else, you're airing your dirty business and in front of the whole staff. So and everybody knows, yeah. like, you're on blast. And, like, it, you know, it's yeah. it's and, fucking embarrassing. And you're a back-of-house guy, but this also applies in the front of house. Mm-hmm. Don't do this in front of the guests. Yeah, exactly. Like, th- exactly. that, I see it happen all the time. Like, yeah. If somebody's not doing something right, like go like around the corner, server yeah, station, back, something, like pit, something, yeah, like and I mean, I always see that it's just like yeah. never do it in front of the guests and never do it in front of your peers yeah. if you can, if possible, yeah, exactly, awesome okay. stuff. Um, so I, I do like to tip my hat or your hat, our hats to the mentors in the past because uh, I know it was just after Empire State, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. um, that you started doing the Eat Me Speak Me, pop yeah. Up, right? So, but before we get into that. Any key mentors that we that you think if, if there was one person or two people that really helped you become the man you are today in the kitchen, who are those people and what do they do for you? Yeah, well, it's definitely Ryan Smith's my biggest mentor yeah. for sure. And I think by the end of Empire, like the culture there wasn't uh, wasn't his fault either. It would just got it just got out of hand. You know, things just snowball, and and that's just what kitchen culture was. But like his it sounds environment, like it was a high stress. Situation. It was. It was fine I mean, dining, high volume. It's like a you know, it's yeah, a it's a pressure box. Yeah. yeah. And like now he's got, you know, you can see it now if you go to staple house, like with their open kitchen and their staff, like he's had so many of the same cooks for so long, you can see how low the turnover is like they've created a healthy, safe environment for people to work. And you know, that's more a reflection of Ryan and who he is, but he was such a like confident cook without being showy, which is something that I've like tried to take with me and, and put into our food of like, it's almost like very effeminate cooking in a way where like the food is so detailed and delicate, like without strutting its stuff, you know, it's like the detail is there. The intricacies there, if you know what to look for, or if you ask us questions and you want to get in the details, but the dish just appears simple at, you know, at the end result, it's just like, this is just a tasty plate of food. It's not hyper conceptual. And that's something I learned from him aside from like all the butchery and charcuterie work. And, you know, I mean, I followed him to two restaurants and spent half of my restaurant career working for him before going out on my own. So, um, that was a big one. Hector Santiago was a, a big influence on me too, from the Pervita days. Cause he was so detail oriented. It was always like cut this, you know, culantro really thinly to garnish this dish. And I would cut it and he'd be like, not thin enough, dude, again. And I would do it again. He'd be like, not thin enough, do it again. I would just keep doing it and doing it until it was like as thin as he thought it was okay. And it was, you know, where you learn the details and stuff like that from yeah. people like him. So those are the two, probably two main ones. Uh, so I think now is a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about how, because I mean, technically, Eat Me, Speak Me was your first business. Yes. All right. Yeah. We'll be right back. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. 
Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. All right. So the year is 2013 now in your timeline as far as where we are. You started in the industry when you were 15 years old uh, and you kind of like chose this path by 2007. Like this is where I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. And what happened where now you're it was almost by accident that you started doing a pop up. Yeah, it was, it was totally by chance. Yeah. yeah. So get into it. So I had some friends, uh, well, I, I still have them as friends, uh, but at the time, my friends who had a coffee shop called Steady Hand Poor House um, were looking for a new location because the building they were in, they were subletting uh, from another tenant and the tenant sold the buildings. They had to be out by a certain time. And so they were looking for somewhere else to set up the shop. Uh, so the owners of the Iberian Pig in Decatur were regulars at the coffee shop as well, Castellucci's. Uh, they invited um, the Steady Hand guys to come do like a breakfast and lunch coffee pop-up out of their space uh, just because they were only open for dinner. And I had put in my notice and quit Empire, um, was planning to move to Asheville, again, North Carolina, because I had friends there from you know that orientation weekend, friends who had stayed and actually attended college there and lived there. Um, and there was a restaurant, the Admiral, which is still open, but the chef at the time, Elliot Moss, was just making amazing food. Um, he's since opened Buxton Hall Barbecue, which you may have heard of. Um, he's no longer involved with them, but he's opening another restaurant of his own called Regina's that'll be opening hopefully in the next year or so. Um, but he's a, a great chef, and I had eaten a few times and just loved the food. So I, when I put in my notice at Empire... I was so burned out on the industry and was like, do I want to even keep doing this? You is know? there a story about putting in your notice at, at the Empire? I, I was just... Because this is your mentor. Yeah, this is yeah. your guy. Like, it sounds like this is finally where you want to be. You have a lane. You have a focus. He's teaching you so much about charcuter, charcuterie and butchery. Yeah. What was the reason? Uh, it was I was willing to die on my hill about the ethics, you know? Yeah. And I talked to him about it. It was part of my reason for quitting. It was like, I feel like the culture has just gotten out of control here. And it's... You know, I was also like, I was on a, 
pay was still shitty back then. It was kind of before the awakening mm-hmm. of the last few years. So I was working 98 or 90 hours a week, sorry, for a $28,000 a year salary before taxes. So, you know, I would have those mornings where I'd wake up and just be like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love what I do, but I don't love how I'm doing it anymore. And, you know, it was kind of like maybe a change of pace. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're scratching our heads like, why is no one take us seriously? Yeah, why so isn't this weird? So, why does everybody think, oh, what this is what you're doing now? What's what's your real goal? What, yeah. Like, what's yeah. your like, what are, what are you going to do after this? You're like, yeah, no, exactly. this. I'm like, not trying to be an actor. This is all I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no wonder why people think that and we yeah. take offense by that. But it's like we made this bed. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I quit under the pretense of like, I love you. I love your food. I have an immense amount of respect for you. I don't love this industry right now. This is what it's going to be like everywhere because everywhere I'd worked had become that way by the end. I was like, I maybe just need to go somewhere else. Places had to become that way to be competitive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think what finally happens is the bottom fell out from underneath and, and people, the, the, this new generation of awareness came of people, the, the people who are working in the industry now had apples, like uh, iPads, yeah. In their, I meant like not like the kind of eat, but like yeah. iPads, like in their hands, they could get information. They're yeah. not, they're more educated today. People, young people are more educated today as much as we don't want to admit it. Yeah, I know. They have access to information and they can tell us when we're bullshitting them because yeah. they can go Google the answer. Yeah, like, exactly. No, fuck you. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, but I think it's a good thing. And it, it sucks right now because we're all like struggling to get, to make it work. But I think in five or 10 years, I think it's going to, it's going to be like, okay, this needed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even like, you know, as dark as it is, like a lot of the places that closed during COVID, like in some ways it's kind of taking the people who were unwilling to change or be flexible and replacing them with people who are to an extent, Mm -hmm. you know, but anyway, that's another topic for another time, I suppose. But, um, so you you walk, you say, I've had enough. I need a break from this. Gave a month, of course, like everywhere. And and, you know, if you're listening to this two weeks is fine, but a month is really, really nice, especially if you're dependent on. And if you're in a leadership position, yeah, it's like, like, I've heard people give like, if if, if it's a serious relationship, like as much as six months, yeah, it's like find somebody and then I'll leave. Cause I know that you're fucked if I do leave and don't help give you this heads up. So I'm out of here in six months. Yeah. You know? People lose sight of the fact that like you might be upset right now, but this has paid your bills for the last couple of years. You owe them a courtesy for supporting your life at a very least, yeah. you know, and it's a small industry. Uh, people talk, oh, yeah. so you don't yeah. want to burn those. Yeah. Bridges. You don't want to burn a bridge. So, um, yeah, I, I called, I think I might've sent, uh, sent him a message, uh, like an email. I looked up the email address and, um, again, like, the admiral wasn't hiring. I didn't know anything about it, but I just sent him a message and was like, Hey man, like my name's Jarrett Steber. I'm a butcher and charcutier at empire state South in Atlanta. I've eaten your food a few times and love it. Do you need somebody who does this? And he called me, left my info. He called me like 10 minutes later and was like, I'm actually on the way out from the admiral, but I'm going to be opening my own place. We're starting with this place called Ben's tune up. That's going to be like a sake brewery slash like Izakaya sort of thing. And then we're opening a, a barbecue place called Buxton Hall. It's going to do whole hog. And we want to have like our own butchery and all that stuff in house. So in the meantime, like if you want to come work with me at Ben's tune up, we can find things for you to butcher and cure and preserve and do pickles and whatever. And then we'll open Buxton Hall and have more use for you there. And it's like, great. So I started doing that. But of course, like every restaurant, the opening of Ben's tune up was delayed. So um, I had quit in. I want to say like March or April of 2013 from empire. 
and then by May, Ben's tune-up hadn't opened yet. Um, so I think they ended up opening in June, maybe. Uh, the Steady Hand guys started doing a pop-up, um, and we're like, well, fuck it. Since you're like waiting for this job in Asheville to open up, why don't you just come serve like breakfast and lunch with us in the meantime? I was like, yeah, all right, why not? So I just started doing that. And then uh, from there, they moved the pop-up over to Candler Park Market Deli, turned it into a nighttime pop-up, and took over the deli after they closed because they only did uh, through lunch service. So we took over in the evenings, and it was going to be a little bit more food-focused and um, feature the coffee as well, but kind of became more about the food while they were still looking for a space. So I started doing that on, I want to say it was like, maybe Monday and Tuesday nights or something. And then on Wednesday I would drive up to Asheville, sometimes work Wednesday night. Um, and then work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, drive back after my shift on Saturday, stop in Athens along the way to Woodland Gardens. One of the big farms I work with would pick up my produce order from them at the farm, drive back into Atlanta, prep all day, Sunday, run the pop-up Monday, Tuesday. I did that for like six or seven weeks and was just like, all right, this is not sustainable. Yeah. But I was enjoying cooking so much with the pop-up and like I felt terrible for Elliot that I just like started this job. But I was getting weird feelings like the other owners of Ben's Tune-Up were just like, they had like their dogs running around in the office and were just like aimless. Like they just seemed like doofusy, kind of like hippie-ish. Like, I don't know. It just felt weird. And like Elliot was working his ass off, like leading a team of cooks, like keeping us motivated producing all this amazing food and the other owners were just like doing fuck off all day and i was like this just feels weird like i don't know and i'm really enjoying doing the pop-up we had the opportunity to move it to like five nights a week and just take over monday through friday night and i was like you're talking about your pop-up yeah right yeah, yeah yeah okay because yeah. you keep calling it the pop-up but i'm sure yeah, 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 okay, sorry yeah so i was like you know let's just let's just keep doing this you know so, so before um for people who are listening to this and i know that you know like it you made a point earlier in the conversation that you got to pay your dues and it's so like pop pop-ups are so easily in reach for so many people, mm -hmm. right. That it's tempting just to go straight for that yeah. out of the gates without getting the experience. Right. Uh, but for people who are listening to this and thinking, Hey, like I could do a pop-up, like what were the things that you, and this is going back to 2013. Yeah. Where this is still kind of fresh. Yeah. So what did you need to know or what did you have to learn to do a pop-up well? Well, we learned really quickly that, especially in Atlanta, nobody had a clue what that was. Yeah. I mean, 2013, they were relatively new. It was like Mission Chinese, like in San Francisco. Yeah. And, you know, San Francisco, New York had the culture. Yeah. They was starting. That was about it. And Atlanta was like not really a thing. So I put in my notice with Elliot, explained to him, like, I have the chance to turn this pop-up full-time. I haven't enjoyed cooking this much since I was 15. Like, what, I want to pursue this. What was it about this type of cooking that brought your enjoyment back into it? It was just mine, mm -hmm. you know. I got to do what I wanted. I got to, you know, it was, like, the freedom of it. I wasn't, like, in a toxic environment anymore. Did it, it take was, 90 hours a week? I mean, it did. It took more, but oh, it really? was my 90 hours, and yeah. it was on my terms. And I saw the potential that, like, if this grows into something, I can have my own staff and I can, like, try not treating them like shit and doing what I think is fair. And yeah. It was, you know, it was like, this is why I got into cooking. Like, I do love this still. It's it's not cooking that I don't like. It's shitty restaurant environments mm. I don't like. So, so what's, where were you doing the pop-up? Like, did you have, were you leveraging relationships? Like, how did you find this? That was still, it? so we were still doing it out of Candler Park Market Deli a couple nights a week, but the Steady Hand guys 
ended up like after a while, they just ran out of funding and momentum. And so they kind of like the company fell apart. And I was like, well, if you guys will still let me stay here at Candler Park Market Deli, I want to keep doing the pop up. So that's when I, they were like, sure, you can move it to Monday through Friday and just like try to turn it into a full time thing. So that's when I put my notice in with Elliot and was like, I'm going to just go back to Atlanta, commit to the pop up. Like, thank you for the opportunity. And I'm very sorry. Like the timing worked out this way. Cause I wouldn't ordinarily never work somewhere for six or seven weeks and put in a notice, but this is an opportunity that just feels right. And I got to call back, trust my gut. Yeah. So, so if I'm doing a pop-up tomorrow for the first time, what do I need? Uh, it doesn't really matter what you prep or think you need. You're going to, everybody's going to, it's like the Mike Tyson thing. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. The only thing you need to do a pop-up is the willingness to be extremely flexible because mm-hmm. it's like, it's hard to predict. It's impossible to plan. It's people don't realize how much work goes into yeah. it. They're like, you're just doing one, one night of a pop-up. Like, what do you do the rest of the week? And it's like, well, I don't have a kitchen or space to store stuff, so it's I basically go shopping catering. every it's day. Just, yeah, it's, it's kind of like catering where you're yeah. on site. Different the pop up can be in different places, except you don't have any of the resources. Yeah, it's like well, catering, but without the chafing dishes and the <laughs> transportation yeah. vessels and the van to move things in so and the staff. It's kind of a trick question because every pop up's unique. It depends yeah. on where you're popping up. Yeah, right? it depends on what resources that are at your disposal. Are you popping up in a restaurant that's closed for lunch every day? And yeah, or the, are you popping up in a restaurant that's closed that? day so you're not getting in the way of the prep for the other exactly. people uh it's it or are you literally like going to a market you know and yeah. popping up it, it's there is no clear defined no. definition of what a pop-up is which is the advantage and the disadvantage yeah. all at the same time yeah, you, you just know? make it work yeah. right yeah. what about permitting and licensing so i think it's now at least i'm pretty sure the city is like kind of caught, caught on, on to it a little <laughs> bit so that i think there is like a pop-up business license type of thing at the time what i always did was i just signed a 1099 contract with whoever i was with as i was a contractor yeah and would just fall under their umbrella of commercial insurance and all that kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. it was like i'm just consulting them on like dinner service or something you know yeah Uh, so that was the workaround which i found out the first year so the first year ish like doing it i guess it was maybe five or six months i did it at candler park market deli we were fucking dead like Everybody was just like, oh, the deli's still open. Can I get my sandwich? And it was like, I'm fucking using like the panini press to steam open like Georgia Coast clams and (laughs) cooking like blood sausage. And they're just like, what is this? You know, it's like if I was in Brooklyn, like grilling blood sausage on a panini press in the back of a deli, we'd have had a line down the block. But we were in Atlanta and everyone was like, I just want my turkey sandwich. So it was it was rough. We didn't make any money. But the first year that I made at least decent revenue when we had moved to Gato, which was a little breakfast diner, actually like two or three buildings down from Candler Park Market Deli that had started a pop-up culture in the evenings. We had like one year where like I wasn't even really making money. We just weren't like bleeding it out egregiously the whole year. And then I owed like $8,000 in taxes because I wasn't used to not having things with, yeah. you know, withheld from my paychecks. So you learn your lessons yeah. real quick. Dude, there's one stuff. thing I echo this all the time, but it, it was, a, it, I ran into that same issue when I started my podcast. You yeah. know, you just don't think about, you taxes. don't think about it. And like, yeah. you need money to do things and you're not making a lot yeah. of money. So all the money you earn, you're you like, spend I need, all of it. I need to 
eat. I yeah. need to pay rent. And like before you know it, like you owe the IRS. Yeah, you're like, I know 30% of this isn't mine, but I need to spend yeah. all of this right now. I'll figure it out. And then eventually the bills yeah. do. And you're like, ah. there's there's a very simple system for this. And yeah. it's hard to have the discipline to do it. You can either use envelopes or you can use checking accounts. Yeah. I use checking accounts. Yeah. It's called the pro- the profit first money management system. Yeah, I've heard about have that. Have you heard of it? Yeah. But like, so you have an income account and Anytime you get paid, money goes into the income account, and then you create like at least four other accounts. Yeah, uh, tax, owners pay, operational expense. I might be missing one. Um, Strip club money. Yeah. Well, if you're a restaurant, you also want like uh, like uh, uh, meal tax. Too, yeah. Right. Yeah. But basically, all the money goes into the income account, and then from there, you take ten percent. That goes to profit. That is your money that you don't touch. Unless you're buying an asset. Yeah. And then there's owners paid. That's what you need to pay yourself to mm-hmm. survive. So you're always paying, you're taking your profit and you're paying yourself. And then whatever's, and then the other thing that you take off the top is 20% tax yeah. or 30% tax, yeah. right? If you're, if you're in the restaurant industry, cause you got meals taxed. Yeah. So now what you left over, that's your operational expense. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you have to run your business. Yes. But you got to take off the top what you need and what the government needs. And then, but it's so fucking yeah, nice, dude. When when you stuff. when you like at the end of the year when you have like twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars just sitting in a tax account, and you're like, I don't have to worry about taxes. Exactly. It's just the, that that stress. You just have to get into that mindset, and that's you know people don't. It's they're so just not used to it. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And like, and you just get used to like, this is my money and yeah. this is not my money. Yeah, and yeah. it's strange getting used to like, especially during a restaurant build out, starting to watch like five figures worth of money move around all the time like and eventually you desensitize to it like every time i run payroll and it's five figures it's like this is crazy to me that i'm just like oh okay like run it like you know and yeah. 10 years ago i was like getting a 600 hundred dollar paycheck every two weeks i was like you know it's just a whole different world yeah so anything else as far as like the economics of pop-ups yeah that's a big one is like just set the money aside that's a huge one you know just plan to set something aside paying quarterly taxes like estimated quarterly taxes helped me for a while yeah and now i'm at a point where i don't need to because i'm just you know you're able to yeah there's penalties if you don't yeah so if you're paying quarterly you're actually saving money yeah so it's worth doing that's a helpful thing for you know up and coming people um i mean you have to be there. That's a big thing for the pop-ups. Like now at the restaurant, I don't work through volume during service every night. I'm always here on Wednesday nights. So if you want to see me, that's the best night to come in because I'm definitely always here through volume on Wednesdays. Um, but other nights I try to be off the schedule once service starts so that I can fill in for and your call out on Monday. Yeah. Sunday, we're closed on Monday, Monday Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. Nice. So I have those days where I'll, I'm off aside from ordering and you know, the random other stuff, computer work, but I try to not come in here physically if I can avoid it on Mondays and Tuesdays, but you know, sometimes shit happens last week. We had to get a new window put in, you know, there's always something. Sometimes so. somebody wants to do a podcast recording. Yeah, exactly. Although today's not but, Monday or Tuesday. Exactly. But I do the mornings. <laughs> like that's my time. I'm always in here early. I try to get in here between like seven and eight o'clock and I spend all day like being involved in the prep so that even if I'm not here during service, it's like I still cooked a lot of the food. I want people to know it's like my food still, but I've taken a step back from working through clothes all the time just to try to balance my life and show my staff too, that it's important to like have a work-life balance. And, um, with the pop-up at the beginning, you have to be there though, you know, cause like you're the face of it. And you have to build the brand based around you. Mm. And once you've done that, you can start worrying about how you take steps back and have a healthy life. I 
did see something along the lines of you would have a pop up. Um, was it the same location throughout the life cycle of the? Pop- it seven moved years? around a little bit, but we we weren't like we're popping up here, we're popping up there. Look at our schedule of where we're going to be. We were like entrenched at places for a while. So after Candler Park Market Deli, we moved over to Gato Breakfast Diner because at the time, so they started when the. The owner, like more recent owner, had taken over probably like 10 years ago now or something. And he started doing this thing called the Baton Supper Clubs. He was a musician, of course, and had connections. Um, and the drummer from Deer Hunter uh, was a big foodie. And like everywhere they would go on tour, he would, you know, like eat at the best restaurants and get to know different chefs. So he was friends with the owner of Gato, Nick Stinson. And they started inviting chefs to come down and just cook dinner on like Monday nights or Sunday, Monday nights when the restaurant was closed and they would sell tickets and just do like as much as they could in two nights. So they had like, you know, Ivan Orkin from Ivan Ramen, Christina Tosi, who now is like Milk Bar in New York, uh, you know, all sorts of people are like coming down and doing these pop-ups. They did it for a couple months and then we're like, all right, we can't like keep flying people out and all this stuff. They had a guy named Alan Suh who was uh, doing a ramen pop-up called Arigato. So he helped with the baton stuff, and then he started doing his own pop-ups. And then I was doing Eat Me, Speak Me next door at Candler Park Market Deli, and I opened two hours earlier than they did. So he would always come over before a shift and have dinner, and we became friends, and we were like the only pop-ups in town. We were like fighting this fight together to try to get people to realize what it was. But they'd set up this culture for pop-ups at Gato by then from the baton dinners and Arigato. So... He was like, you know, your food's great, slow here in this location. Like, why don't you come do a couple nights at Gato and you can back me up as my like support cook and then I'll be your support cook during your nights. So I was working three nights with Arigato, two nights of Eat Me Speak Me out of Gato. And then he stopped doing Arigato and I moved the schedule to still it was only three nights, but we did Friday, Saturday, Sunday because they were the busiest nights and then spent all the rest of the week prepping for it and working for it and did that for... I think almost three years we were at Gato and then we just got into a point where like they hadn't they still just had booths so it's four booths seven bar seats and there'd be like some nights you'd have four two tops at the booths and a three-hour wait list with like 16 names on it because you were just you wasting so all the space yeah. so I kept being like you gotta get a banquet you gotta get a banquet and the guy didn't want to do it so then eventually I, I got an opportunity to move to SOS Tiki Bar in Decatur, which is part of the Victory Brands network of restaurants. And they were just like sick of having crappy food and didn't want to pay for a chef. So they were like, why don't you just come do the pop-up here? You do your own thing, have your staff, make your own money off the food. And then we'll just be doing the drinks. We want to have quality food. So it'll be Eat Me, Speak Me and SOS at the same time. And okay. they had like a much bigger kitchen, more storage space, more seating. I was like, well, this is a chance to grow. What about actually the transaction between you and the, the guest? Are you m- running around with a square? That, or I, like- that was where it also got complicated. But it usually just went through the POS of whoever was hosting us. And then I had to kind of worry about on the back end what the deal was with the hosts. What was this, what's a standard deal? What are the so, different deals that you would work out? The, usually it's like some profit split kind of thing. Some places now, like if there's a place with alcohol, a lot of times they just want to keep the alcohol sales and maybe let the pop-up keep the food or whatever. But at the time, Gato didn't have a liquor license. It was BYO. So I think my split was like, 50 50 or 60 40 something like that of yeah. profit yeah. after costs and payroll taxes and all that kind of stuff uh, when we moved to sos they were like 
we have the alcohol sales. We just want a small percentage of the food. So I think we moved it to like 80, 20 or something on like the food. And he was like, I just want you to run your own payroll and all that stuff too. Like the money can come in for food sales through our POS and we'll like pay you out as a contractor from that. But we don't deal with like your staff, whatever. So I had to like go set up my own payroll company and get workman's comp and all that kind of stuff on my own. So that was sort of like easing into more of the business side of it there. But it, it just kind of ranges place to place. Um, but usually the easiest ways for the transactions to still just go through the POS system. Yeah. But some people now will use Square. Do you ever get kind of burnt stuff. on getting your cut? No, no, yeah. thankfully. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like with the owner of Gato, he was kind of like aloof and distracted. So sometimes I'd have to be like, hey, let's like run the numbers. The, you know, the, the money part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't like I wasn't getting burned. He just would But any advice on how to it. track that? Is there a POS that you were using where you're like, this is the like there's a, a workaround or a way yeah. that you can just like funnel money from like this night or like, yeah, I mean the, the more like organized the POS, the better, like it got to, I don't even really know what the system was. It was like just a super old school, like little small punch number type of thing. But like at SOS, they used Aloha, which is a pretty powerful POS system. Yeah. And they were able to very easily pull up their reports. You would just make a category of like, pop up and then you press yeah. on it and like put all the items in it and then it's just easy to track yeah. you and know? i know some of your listeners are like why not why not toast i'm like i use mind. toast now yeah 2013 no, 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 I to toast. 2020 toast was toast. on the come up yeah <laughs> yeah we use toast now and we love them so uh it definitely works well toast if you're listening and want to sponsor us for the shout out feel free to give me free uh monthly services but you know yeah, me too yeah exactly <laughs> but no we love toast it's great yeah uh, aloha sucks i wouldn't use that one well yeah, i will but, say that they are com- they are now cloud-based they're making changes is it kind. better yeah, yeah. Uh, they had no choice <laughs> yeah exactly you're getting uh run over but i like, have heard also heard people use just like things like eventbrite so if you're doing yeah. a pop-up that i mean you're doing high level high touch all week prep yeah like courses options right some pop-ups can be like one thing yeah we're doing one thing we use this is what you get or yeah i use that for like event nights like before the restaurant opened we did some like preview dinners like the summer before so we sold like tickets for that and that's what's nice is now you know exactly what you need to cook yeah you can you can cost it out easier yeah exactly Uh, but there's different you know just like the restaurants industry there's different types of restaurants there's different types of pop-ups you're just basically stuck with like the prefix model at that if you're doing it that way it's just like here's the cost of the event versus like come in and buy what you want yeah what about insurance uh, so the insurance all fell under like the host, you know, that was part of signing the 1099s everywhere. It was like, now I'm part of their commercial insurance. Got but, it. Um, you know, I think at this point now the city's like, since they've caught up has probably made it in a way where you can get your own commercial insurance policy as a pop-up. But previously, like I couldn't get a business license to be a pop-up. So it was always like, I guess I have to just be a contractor and do these pop-ups. But now I think you can. So got it. Got it. Anything that I'm not, thinking of or that i should be asking you in terms of if somebody's listening to this and they're like pretend i'm opening a pop-up tomorrow what's your advice for me um i mean you have you have to be aware of what you're getting into that's a big thing people don't realize how much work goes into a pop-up and it is probably more work than a traditional restaurant in a lot of ways because you don't have the infrastructure in place. Yeah. So you're doing all the shopping and like crazy prep hours and whatever to make it work. This sounds like the same narrative with people who want to buy food trucks. Yeah. Yeah. Food, yeah. You have to deal with all the <laughs> restaurant shit plus car mechanics, yeah, you know, and like the logistics of you need a commissary. Yeah. Going to the commissary, sharing space at the commissary. Like you're sharing space at a restaurant. Like yeah. it's, 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 it's more within reach for 
people because the the, the overhead to get started is yeah, lower. Yeah, yeah, there's less of a barrier. It comes with baggage. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. So, yeah. And, you know, it's like opening restaurants, doing pop-ups, food trucks, like you've all heard it a million times. It's a terrible idea. It's a risky investment. It's an unstable model. And that's all true. And you probably should not do it. But if you want to, you're going to do it anyway, regardless of what me and the hundreds, thousands of years of people before me have said about running restaurants. Yeah. So like, you My know, goal is to talk people out of running restaurants. Yeah, you shouldn't. You should not open one. If I can help but. thousands of people not open a restaurant, then I've done my job. Yeah. And for all those other people who are like, no, nah, I still want to do it. Yeah. Well, we're going to help you. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, one thing I will be a little more firm on is like, if you have not spent your career working in restaurants or at the very least a large chunk of your working life working in restaurants, you should not open a restaurant because yeah. you're the assholes that have 98% of your restaurants close and makes it hard for the people like us who do know what we're doing to get money to open restaurants. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with that statement. That's honestly what I would tell somebody yeah. to do. However, I do interview a lot of people. I'm always surprised at how many people, how many people get into this industry with zero experience and crush it. And I think it's because they don't have any of the bad habits that the restaurant industry has. Yeah. The we restaurant find industry the right has, people to run yeah, it too. Yeah. And the restaurant industry does have a lot of bad habits as oh, far yeah. as like we, we've been like basically cookie cutting the 1905 restaurant model. <laughs> you know. know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, wait, we live in 2022 now. Like we have resources available to us, like the internet. Yeah. To, like the, the, our market is the world, not just what we can fit inside our restaurant. So they like, they spin the, 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 the model upside down and, and it usually comes from people that come outside of the industry because they go, why can't I do it like this? Yeah. You know? So I'm always surprised at the same time. And then there's but also, I do agree with you what you're saying. There's the counter side of it are the people who come from like a very straightforward business background who don't realize like just the perishable nature of restaurant product creates a whole different set of problems of like when you're not busy and let's say like Apple has a slow week at the, you know, Lenox Mall Atlanta location. The iPads aren't going to go rotten, you know, like you could just sell the ones you didn't sell this week, next week. But in a restaurant, you not only didn't sell what you brought in, you then have to buy more of it next week yeah. because it all went bad. I, I think you might hold a, a world record for world's longest sustained pop-up seven years very man. possible because 2013 even with my podcast i started in like 2012 or 2013 was the first was it 2014 i think it might have been 2014 that's around the time i started yeah and i didn't th this wasn't even on my radar and i was talking and interviewing people like so you're like ahead of the curve yeah with pop-ups i didn't want it to last seven years and I'll you, you went until much. 2020 yeah you know uh but that's like the longest I've heard, but at the same time, it, it, it gave you the tools, the resources. The thing we haven't talked about yet is developing a brand with a pop up, mm -hmm. which is, I think, the most valuable part of a pop up. You're shaking your head. Yeah. What do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, it's like personality based, I think. So the brand sort of became like largely an extension of our personality that we were like very irreverent and just kind of did whatever the fuck we wanted, like wrote funny menus and like you know, put jokes on things and just kind of tried to like take the pretense out of fine dining yeah. without taking the skill set away from it, you know? Yeah. And that was a big part of why people fell in love with the pop-up and in turn, why people appreciate little bear. Now I think is that it's like, there's just not a lot of places like it where it's like, we take ourselves extremely seriously in terms of prep and what we yeah. offer and sourcing interesting wine and whatever, but we don't take ourselves that seriously with, you know, like there's restaurants that like name dishes where it's like exploration of the sea. And you're just like, 
Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> I hope you like just fall into the sea and never come back. <laughs> and that's like the mindset that we have here is like, come on, like it's just food. Yeah. You know? And I do see that you have an eat me, speak me website. Oh, probably. I don't know. It's very unmonitored if it's still around. It does say you're permanently closed too when I, on Google that you may yeah. speak to me. But at the same time, treat your pop up like a brick and mortar yeah. when it comes to the brand. Yes, exactly. Just because you're not an official restaurant, like you yeah. don't have the brick and mortar, does not mean you're a, not a business. Yeah, you're still a business. So have that, that digital storefront, right? And that's mm-hmm. the cool thing about pop ups is you can start, like, you don't need to have the restaurant to start your brand. And even if your goal is to open a restaurant and you start as a pop-up and it moves into a brick and mortar, you you can still develop your brand, develop your mission, develop your core values, develop, you know, what it is that you want to do. And I think most importantly, build your email list. Mm-hmm. So did, were, did, were you... Did you have that in the back of the mind? Were you thinking about like every encounter I have during this pop-up is an opportunity for for me to capture an email or a phone number or something where I can keep this relationship going for when I am ready and I can blast out a notification where here's our, you know, our, our grand opening, right? Yeah. I mean, I always kind of saw the light at the end of the tunnel and, and the reason the pop-up lasted for seven years was because I spent six of them like planning the restaurant, trying to find a space, trying to find funding. Yeah. And it just, you know, took a while yeah. as it does. I was very stubborn about the investors I wanted, you know, needed the money, but I also didn't want to sacrifice the deal to get the money. It still had to be friendly to the restaurant ultimately because we can't survive if we're shackled by our investors yeah. and by the deal that we're under. And then finding the right space was hard because a lot of restaurants in Atlanta are very large and I wanted to have a small one, which is unique for Atlanta. There's more small ones now, but you know, when I opened the place and when I was planning for it, there weren't any, like even now people will look at a 70 or 80 seat restaurant here and be like, Oh, it's a small restaurant. It's yeah. like, no, it's not. It's a medium to large size restaurant. Yeah. So finding the right space was tough. And I wanted an old building, which Atlanta is like knocking every old building down and putting up the same cookie cutter developments everywhere, which sucks, but it's what it is. So I wanted to be part of saving an old building and fixing it up. So, you know, it took a while. Um, but yeah, I mean the pop-up every meal, every guest that was like, this is somebody who might remember us and come to the restaurant when it opens. And you know, that helped us cause we timing wise, once the build out was done, we opened February 26th of 2020. So we literally had like two weeks before the state of emergency for COVID yeah. was declared. And it worked because we were packed for the first two weeks with reservations because we had seven years of building a customer base. And I don't pay for PR or anything like that. We do everything word of mouth, free social media, which like I'm the asshole behind the Instagram. Like it's me. And that's <laughs> part of the brand, you know, but it was, you know, we worked it. We like used our contacts with media. Like I've never paid for advertising. I've never comp meals or critics it was just like when the time comes i will ask for you know hey we're opening this restaurant will you promote it and it's like i don't know what a fucking media release is supposed to look like or not i just know like i'm gonna send you an email and be like here's some details we're opening the restaurant like you're all looking for content here's some content feel free to use it and so we were busy the first couple weeks we opened with 280 dollars in our bank account the first night and a dream and hopes that we'd be busy and thankfully we were and had, you know, maybe twelve or fifteen hundred dollars of profit after the first two weeks and saw the writing on the wall with, you know, we're gonna have to 
do takeout only. And unlike most other restaurants that had years of operating and we're like, this will last a couple of weeks. We'll just close and wait it out. We're like, we don't have that option. Yeah. yeah I just so spent I, all my money on building on a restaurant. Yeah. So <laughs> it was just like, I'm going to have to take a chance right now and take this little bit of money that we made and use it to buy takeout supplies. Because yeah. if we are going to be busy with takeout, we need to have the product on hand to put the food in to sell enough to yeah. make sense. Yeah. So I bought as much as I could that first week and was like, let's hope we're busy. And then thankfully we were busy with takeout for a few months. And what did you, what technology did you open with? Uh, like POS system wise. We have a toast. So you, you had, fortunately you were prepared to be able to make that. Quick kind edit. of. No. We were not because we never expected to do takeout. Like, but at least it was an option, but so it was with, an option. So with toast, like all you gotta do is flip a switch. Yeah. Right. And now yeah. you can morph, your you know, like your system to support that yeah and toast was was so helpful for like at the beginning they like waived fees for the first few months for everybody like the monthly premiums and gave like discounted rates to install the you know add on the option for to go sales but yeah i mean it was definitely like you know from sunday night service one night close monday tuesday wednesday we opened we were a takeout restaurant it was like we need to figure out how the online ordering back end of toast works yeah we didn't train for this like and your website in the website like like getting the online ordering integrated with the website like figuring all that shit out like what structure you know how are we going to bag this up like did you ever play the 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 um third-party delivery game no yeah no but doordash if you're listening you guys can go suck a big fat one they um (laughs) are like the worst and just keep adding you to their platform like every like eight months they're just like we're just gonna put you on doordash without your permission so i keep having to call and be like take me off of doordash we don't want to be on this this isn't our current menu we're not open for lunch gotta be some type of like legal situation i think they're just like they can't take your brand and and try to like i'm sure but they're probably like are you gonna go through the trouble and expense of like suing us they play the odds that like some people will just see increased sales and be like ah fuck it whatever we'll stay on doordash but like we're not trying to do takeout. Like it's basically every like eight or nine months, somebody walks in here while I'm prepping and they're like, I'm picking up an order for DoorDash for so-and-so. I'm like, no, you're not. And you're about to have to call that person and give them the bad news. And I'll <laughs> yeah. go call DoorDash again and get off their platform. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, when you got the news that you weren't, you wouldn't qualify for PPP. How'd you feel? Yeah. I mean, I expected it. So yeah. I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, yeah. it, Par for the course, I to guess. To me, that was, I felt so bad for those people who, it's weird because, like, I don't know how the government figures, oh, if you opened a restaurant within yeah. the past, like, six months, you're, you don't qualify because you're technically not dependent yeah. on your business yet, but you're probably a million dollars in Yeah, debt. they don't understand. <laughs> like, yeah. did, I know, it's weird. Tone deafness from the government. <laughs> yeah, Who'd have like, thought? It's like, no, now is when I need it the most. Yeah, now exactly. is like when I, I need to make money. Well, the worst I'm, part too is seeing like, it's all public. Like you could see everybody, like every LLC that got a PPP loan in your area. So you're just like looking around being like, this like loan? bakery that <laughs> yeah. has three locations got like 250 grand per location. Like fuck off. You know what yeah. I mean? But yeah, it, it is what it is. I knew we weren't going to get it the first time. And honestly, I didn't even apply because I didn't want to get one the first time because I didn't believe the criteria forgiveness was was going to be like possible for us to achieve. So I didn't think we'd be able to get the loan completely forgiven and was worried about taking on more debt in addition to my investment that I hadn't paid a dime back yeah. on yet. And then when the second wave of PPP loans came around, it they like res- made the restrictions like a little looser where you could use it on like 
not just payroll. You could also use it on ingredient costs and like any within reason, any other operating costs like utilities and food and alcohol that you're bringing in to sell and, you know, whatever else versus like, here's 10 weeks of payroll. You have to spend it in eight weeks or less or it's not forgiven. And it's like, eh. so we got one the second time, but it was like paltry. You know, it, it was enough for like one and a half payroll runs. It's yeah. just like, all right, cool. Every little bit helps. It helped, but uh, yeah, it was yeah. kind of like... Uh, so you mentioned something earlier that kind of just breezed over. Like one of the things that was uh, important to you when opening and why it took you seven years in your opinion is because you wanted the right partners. Yeah. So can you get into your partnerships? Are you willing to talk about partnerships and yeah, what you so learn about partnerships? I've got two sets of investors, two couples, um, and they both essentially were like willing to uh, treat it like private bank loans. I didn't silent partners. Yeah, just silent partners. It's a debt deal for both sets. It was just like, here's money. And every year it doesn't get paid back. Here's how much interest accrues on it. It's in my interest to pay it back sooner because then I owe less in overall interest money. And for them, it's in a safer deal for them because the longer I don't pay it off, the more money they get. So it's yeah. kind of like, you know, sort of works for both sides. Can you give like specific, uh, you don't need to give the details of your, if that's uncomfortable, but like if you're giving somebody advice on how to set that up, what that <laughs> looks like, what would that be? It's luck. Most, I yeah. mean, honestly, like yeah. it's mostly luck. Like one of the couples were friends of friends and, no, and the friend who brought them in to eat at the pop-up didn't know that they like were in a position to maybe invest in a restaurant, but they were both vegetarians and we're like, our food's very vegetable driven the way we source. Everything's local. So we're it's buying our seasonal products. So successful. yeah, they were just like, yeah. this is the most interesting vegetarian food we've ever had. Like yeah. we want to help this get open. And they also saw like the reason for investing without equity in the business, without like a percentage of ownership, it has having it be strictly financial. Cause they were like, if you decide you don't want to do this anymore and you're like ready to retire and you have another chef run it or you sell it to somebody else, we don't want to be stuck. Like we're investing in you. Yeah. So like we want you to have the money to open the place you pay us back. We get some interest money. So, you know, but it's mostly like it's a restaurant investment. Like you're not making a ton of money off of this. You know, you're probably just doing it because it's a passion project. Yeah. For you. Yeah. What so, about the space? Um, what was appealing about this space? What was the number you thought you needed to get this space up and running? Whatever you think you need for a restaurant, you owe, you will need twice as much. Did you least. know that then? Kind of, but I was hoping I was wrong. <laughs> I'd also like spent so long trying to figure it out. And like, so one thing that I tried to do uh, by the end was like, after I had gotten the first couple to commit to investment, I was like looking for the space and I finally found this one. I was like, this is the space, this is the one I want to do it. And I had 150 grand from this one couple committed and was like, that's not enough. But when you say this is the space, this is, are you talking about the drawing on the wall? I'm talking about this, this, space? this okay. one that yeah. we're in. Yeah, this space for Little Bear is like, this is the one I want. For the record, there is a drawing on the wall of the first space, a floor plan, like one of yeah. those like back of napkin situations <laughs> over there. Yeah. Uh, but that space didn't work out. So what was it about this space? You said 150 is what you thought you needed? I had 150 committed from the one couple and I was like, this is not enough, but the landlords, you know, were, were negotiating on, on potential lease for this space. And I didn't touch rent. I was like, rent's fine. The space is small enough where like I can afford the rent when we open. And that's usually what people go after first when they're negotiating. And I was like, whatever, just like whatever you need on rent. Fine. What I want is more tenant improvement allowance, the money that you give to help fix up the space at the beginning which I didn't realize naively at the time you get 
after you complete portions of the work. So you still have to front the work. You just yeah. get reimbursed for it. So it wasn't really, I mean, it was helpful, but it wasn't helpful for like a bootstrap business. Yeah. Um, but I was focused on that. And I was like, all right, with the TI money, with the first couple of investment, like I'm close enough where I feel like I should just sign the lease because I don't want to lose the space. What's the, and then I'll figure it out. Tenant improvement okay, allowance. Okay. Yeah. Sorry from the landlord. So I was like, we'll find a way to, to make it happen from here. And I was like, I think what I should do now is like, I have a lease. I'll try to like get a loan from the SBA. Because the SBA, like, you need a lease in place. So that's mm-hmm. another thing with, like, why that whole system's fucked. Just, like, every bank and government run type of thing is, like, you don't realize that right away. But once you start exploring it, you're like, oh, Small Business Association, they'll fund a restaurant when traditional banks won't. But I think it's smart on the, the SBA's account, too, because at the same time, they know that nobody's going to give you a lease or many, more people are less likely to give you a lease unless you're somebody who has the experience and has done the work and they're, you're good. Because yeah. like, like landlords are, are you yeah, know, they have betting to do their diligence too. You know? yeah, so, for sure. so if the landlord's doing their due diligence and they're like, yeah, you look, you, you have the pedigree, you have the experience, I'm, I'll talk. Yeah. Then the, the SBA is like, okay, that's one more layer to like for you not to waste our time. Yeah, right? yeah, for for sure. I mean, I get it from their perspective, but they're also supposed to be enabling small business, and they're like, sign this lease and guarantee it, and then <laughs> maybe we'll give you money. Yeah, you yeah. know. And um, then on top of that, what they don't tell you until you start getting the process is you need at least like. I think it's 10%, might be 20% fluid cash for the amount of the loan. So I was like, all right, I'll leverage my investment for this to like get a loan to like, you know, another hundred grand or 150 or whatever I can get out of the SBA. And they're like, well, that's not fluid. It's a, on a promissory agreement with the investors. It's not your money. You need fluid cash to get this you loan. Need assets. Yeah. You need like your own money. It's like, if I had a hundred grand sitting around for this $500,000 loan I'm trying to get, yeah, I would not be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So well, that's how rich people think. And that's yeah. why they're rich is like that. I'm not using my, my money. money yeah. It's like, I have it, but <laughs> I would, yeah. couldn't possibly touch that. Then I might have to wash my own clothes next week. So yeah, I just was like, all right, well, this isn't going to work. I don't think so. But there's also a lesson there that you need a cushion. You know, you should never put yourself in the situation where if it doesn't work, you're, out on the yeah, you're done for forever. You know? So, uh, what was this? What was the space before you moved into it? How much of the build no out idea. do you need? I have no idea. Was it, it was like- it was totally raw. Like when I saw the building, there wasn't a floor. It was oh. just like beams and then the crawl this space. It's gorgeous, though. It's it's such a charming spot. It's, yeah, it goes to show. Like if you will go on the edge of town. Yeah. Where it's it's not great now. What's it going to be in two years? Yeah. Are there condos going up next door? Like what's going on? And these buildings were like they've just been vacant for a long time. When the Braves were in the stadium, that's right down the street. They had a big non compete clause for the area around here to not interfere with the vendors, so oh, it kind of that. shut everything down. And then when GSU took over uh, the stadium, they you know that got lifted, nice. and they obviously want things here to incentivize like student housing, like kids wanting to move close to you know the stadium, close to campus. And so, you know, the neighborhood's been totally revitalized in the last few years with all these commercial endeavors finally in these buildings that were vacant for a long time. And the Braves have moved to a part of town where they have the battery. It's like a little community around the stadium, which is kind of what they always envisioned for their yeah. like situation and wasn't able to happen here. So it kind of backfired on what they were hoping for. But now they're in a fit that's exactly right for them. And this area of town is in a fit that's exactly right for for Summerhill. So it's, you know, kind of worked out in a lot of ways, but yeah, I mean, this building was like, there's a tree growing through the building where the office is now. That's why the brick <laughs> on the, on the wall is a different color in the corner. Oh, that's that's all new brick and the sh- shade of brick 
the rest of the building, the original stuff's from like 1900. They don't make this exact brick anymore. Oh, it's gorgeous. So that was the closest color brick, you know? So it's, yeah, I mean, I showed my architect and my wife the building, like no floor. You could see into the crawl space, a tree growing through it. My architect was like, oh, fuck, you're going to make me build the space out, aren't you? I was like, <laughs> yes, I am. This is the one. <laughs> so we're sitting in the dining room right now. We're mm-hmm. looking at the bar, which is also an open kitchen. So yes. you have the the bar and the kitchen behind behind the long bar on the mm-hmm. left side of the building. Is there more prep space in the back, or not is really? We see what we have? It's basically just a dish pit in the back. So okay. yeah, I mean, it, we have a walk-in cooler back there, uh, a small upright freezer, and an ice machine. And then so, there's the dish machines and sinks, and there's like one small prep table and some shelves with storage space but that's so, uh, it so everything's done space, out here but pretty modest at the same time yeah yeah we're 1300 square feet and that's including that like dish pit area so the dining room is about like 650 700 square feet the dining room open kitchen Got and it. then we have like the office and two bathrooms and the dish pit eats up the rest of the square footage so cool so any other lessons that you know blindsided you in the opening of the space and preparing for the space things that just you learned the hard way that maybe is unique to your story that might also be unique to someone else's story that you can help them have a heads up for don't try and do it yourself you should definitely like use an architect and vet vet them out make sure they have a lot of restaurant experience because the permitting for restaurant build outs is different than other things square feet studio the best best in the game Got it. Um, what about, did they design it too? Yeah, they did architecture and design on one place. And that's another thing to keep in mind that a lot of design firms don't do their architecture. So you get this like outrageous quote because it's expensive yeah. and rightfully so. But you get this expensive quote from the design. You're like, all right, cool. Like 40, 50 grand, 60 grand, whatever. Like, yeah. all right, you know, I'm all in. And then you, they're like, you know you're oh, on now S- we're going to pay the architect. Too. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you're on a Smith's, uh, Smith Haynes radar. Right. Yeah. So I was wondering if you guys worked together, but he's the one that told me I should talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. So we had talked initially. Um, he just does design, at least at the time. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if they do architecture in house now or not, but at the time they weren't. So that was a big concern Got for it. me, which is Got why we ended up not working together. It was cordial. Yeah. But it was like, you know, I, I want all of it in one just because like he seems like a gentleman he is yes yeah. and i'm i'm on a, i was on a shoestring budget which not everybody is yeah. like so i was like i you know everything matters so for me i'd rather know like this five you know digit line item in my build out is going to be like roughly all in for design and architecture versus like design and then we'll see yeah so i ended up going with square feet and they were they were regulars of the pop-up too. the owners of square feet they'd like eaten the food they knew a lot about me and the food and were just like really emotionally invested in the nice. project and helped how they could. That always so, helps. Yeah. It helped a lot. So that's yeah. a big thing. Like your architect is worth their weight in gold because you think you're paying more, like don't cheap out on the architect because yeah. they're going to save you time and time is money. So you opened February, 2020 mm-hmm. made it through the pandemic, made it through 2021, made it through 2022 yep. about to be three years. Yep. What has your evolution been? What have you learned over these three years? And, you know, anything as far as a first time restaurant owner that you can help educate our listeners about? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's like the whole trust your gut thing comes back. Like I, I've always tried to operate the place as I feel is best. And I'm not worried about what other people are doing as much. I don't really look at other restaurants or other chefs. So what they're doing, I try to focus more internally on like, what are we doing? Is it good? I want every person who works here to feel like they have a voice with how things run, that they can talk to me about things that 
they like, that they don't like, that they can contribute to the model for service. And that's a big thing is you're hiring people, hopefully with like experience or with a good work ethic. You should also be able to trust them for their input on how service should run, you know, especially if you're not in there 24 seven running every aspect of it. Like they're going to have more of a hand on, you know, this slight thing isn't working with guest interactions during service. Can we like change around how this is worded or whatever, anything. And you need to be able to listen to everybody because, you know, it's, that's the only way you're going to keep people is if they feel like it's more than just a paycheck, you know, but it also has to be a paycheck that is sustainable too for their life. So, I mean, that's a big thing. Like the pandemic, everyone's like, Oh, you know, the workforce, I can't find help. It's like, well, it turns out if you like, you know, pay your staff fairly, don't treat them like shit. It's really not hard to find people. We've never had staffing issues. Yeah. I so it's, I think it's, it's a, definitely a, across the nation. Uh, I do think certain markets benefited from the pandemic in the sense of mm-hmm. they got a, a, a influx of new, like, dude, how, you, I lost count of how many cranes I see on the horizon. In, in oh, Atlanta. yeah. Like, oh, it's everywhere. In, Especially in Midtown. Where you're yeah, yeah. Nashville, um, Atlanta, the Midwest. Yeah. I think what, what happened, and my listeners who listen to the show are like, we, you talked about this last time, Eric, but it's a new conversation. Uh, Jarrett and I have not talked yet. Yeah. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like I think what happened is like on like the the coasts, right? So populated, so dense. Yeah. During the pandemic, people that had money in like the cities went to like like they moved like fifty miles out of the city. Yeah. And all the people that had houses in like the burbs, um, like made like like their the call the value of their house increased two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. They're like sweet. Yeah. They sold their house to the city people yeah. and then they moved <clears throat> to a less expensive area. Yeah. I.e. the Midwest and the South. Yeah. And this happened all over the place. So like this part of the country, there's an influx of people that came to like the South and the Midwest. So I feel like it, it almost like yeah, it helped. Sense. Um so there's a lot of growth here, but it I think Different parts of the country are absolutely hurting for people right now, for sure. I think that it's real in different places. And I think the other part of it, there's, there's more restaurants than ever before. So yeah. there's the really good restaurants that take really good care of their people and they're really busy. Yeah. And then there's restaurants that aren't making money that can't find anybody to work because yeah. they're not the place to work. So but I mean, you look at it like in Atlanta, for example, like this is a city that used to be a kind of an affordable like metropolis, right? And yeah. now it's not really anymore like rents extremely expensive. Like we've over the last two years had the highest inflation of anywhere in the country. In well, what have it been like two years ago? Now. It was already expensive. It's really been within the last five years, but in the last couple of years, like so many people are moving here for Hollywood stuff. Yeah. And like production companies are just will pay anything. They're just like whatever. We're like buy all the units on this floor of the building to have them for like actors or whoever when they come to town. Made in Georgia. Yeah, exactly. And like tech money, like a <laughs> bunch of tech stuff moving here now. Like people from New York and other big cities and ad agencies and other like high paying corporate jobs and whatever. A lot of people moved here during the pandemic to like you know. So we were open and people got sick of not having it be that way. So it's all like led to, you know, a lot more of like, yeah, fuck it. We'll pay it for rent. So, but I mean, it's like we, we live in Inman park, my wife and I, which is a pretty nice neighborhood now. And I would say the average one bedroom now is probably like 22 to 2,500 bucks in the neighborhood. So it's like, it's big city prices. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for sure. Um, one other thing that you mentioned earlier, the, the significance of getting the experience, right? And from a chef perspective, you're talking about sharpening your knife in the sense of your skill set, right? Mm-hmm. And having that broad sense of, of, of ability to do a, a lot of different things, not just one thing. 
But the other benefit of spending seven years running your own pop-up and another, what, like five or six years before that, working in the best restaurants in the city is when you were ready to open your restaurant, how thick was your Rolodex? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, I, it was, you know, it's, it's helpful. Like, I think for me, one of the biggest things is like never burning bridges, like the men- mentality of staying at a restaurant for a year at a minimum and like, you know, all that stuff, it led to a, a point of like, I feel like anybody I used to work with or used to work for, for the most part, could just be like, I can just hit them up and it's, you know, cordial and communal, you know? So we were pretty much fully staffed before we opened the restaurant because of a network of people like two cooks who'd worked for me in the pop-ups or my opening kitchen team. It was just me and two people. And we had like, you know, connections from through them and other restaurants and people who wanted to work front of house. And, you know, we needed more staff than we opened with, but then we also like, had to be takeout only for 15 months unexpectedly. So it kind of helped not having yeah. a totally like enormous staff. You don't have to leave anybody off. We, yeah, exactly. And we never did. I never missed a paycheck for anybody. The whole point in the pandemic, which is something I'm really nice. proud of. We worked really, really hard to hustle and like find a reason to steer people into ordering takeout from us. And there were months where it was harder than others, especially when things were reopening that first year, like by the summer. It was tough the first fall, but like we found a way to make it work. I was really determined to make sure nobody missed a paycheck and there was always money for the staff. And, but you know, that, that was helpful. And like, even now, like I never advertise when we're hiring, I go through, like if I don't know them or somebody I work with doesn't know this person, I pretty much don't bring them in Yeah. unless like every now and again, I get an email from somebody who's like, they just like took their own time and effort to find a contact email sent me a message with a resume and a cover letter and looked, you know, in a nice, well-formatted sort of way. And I'm just like, this is so rare now that just because you didn't slide into my fucking Instagram DMs asking for a job, <laughs> like, I want to find you one, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I usually be like, I'll find a way. I'll find a way. Like, and we'll get they last shifts. for more than a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's crazy. So anything we haven't talked about yet as far as things that uh, are unique to you, your skill set, your business model, your story, a hard lesson, any information you can just pay for it to the next generation of people trying to do what you're trying to do. I mean, you're still, yeah. I feel like you're, you're two years in it, right? Yeah. So it's like, you're so fresh. Yeah. And I feel like whenever I love talking to people like you because your story is so much more relatable to who's to somebody who's trying to do it today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you have to stay that, like, I feel like if you, if you can't stay fresh for lack of a better term, then like it's time to get out. Yeah. You got to find a way to stay fresh. And that, that means doing something you believe in. It means surrounding yourself with the right people. Like I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Like when I leave here and don't work service and like have see people like posting to their Instagram stories or whatever, having good experiences at the restaurant. Like I get proud thinking like the staff's there, like paying attention and doing a good job and upholding the standards and like things like that keep me motivated as cheesy as it sounds to be like, you know, I'm proud of them and feel like I've set an example that they want to live up to. And I've created a space where they feel like empowered and happy to be working and doing a good job. And like, that means a lot to me and keeps me young. I don't know. It's like the necklace for the red lady in game of Thrones. And once I take it off, I just wither into nothing. But, <laughs> but for now they're keeping me young. So what is it about you? What, like you said, like, I can't remember the, the exact words you use, but like doing what matters to you. And what is that? What matters to you? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like the way we source, uh, is really important. Like we buy everything fresh from local farms, all the meat, all the, even seafood. It's like wild caught 
catfish from the Oconee, like everything's from around here, all the produce, any fruits, whatever. And, you know, we try to like source that way. And that's kind of the ethos here. Where it's like, we're not just using it as marketing. Like it's Georgia, whatever food, or like we're farm to table that it's like, whatever it's everything here is that way. You just know it. We're not listing farm names on the menu. Cause it's like, this is all from farms around here. You can ask us if you want to know which farm that turnip is from, we'll tell you, but that's something that's important to me paying the staff. Well, like we provide healthcare for all the full-time staff. It's paid in full by the restaurant. That's something that's important to me. It was like kind of put your money where your mouth is as a proprietor. Like, especially this industry is like overall, I would say a very liberally minded industry from, you know, the perspective of most employees and owners here. And it's like, well, everyone should have healthcare and every blah, 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 blah. Then it's like, all right, well then why don't you fucking pay it? You know? And then they're like, well, I didn't say that, you know? So, you know, trying to like change the culture a little more. When you say every, when you say you should try to pay it, who, who is you in your mind? Like the restaurant, like the restaurant should be providing for its staff. Like I, I don't feel like I should have to pay healthcare for the entire world because I can't afford that. Yeah. But if I'm going to take somebody in to work here and trust them to run my business and ask them to sacrifice their time and their effort and their life to help me run my dream restaurant, I need to take care of them. They need security. They need security. Yeah. So your, your operational expense is increasing because you're, you're offering insurance. Yeah. Your operational expense is increasing because you're sourcing from local farms. Yeah. Your operational expense is increasing because you're paying your people a livable wage. I'm assuming yeah. based off of your values. How are you doing this and staying profitable? Are you profitable? Right yeah, now? we're profitable. It's a small restaurant that helps. Yeah. We're not like wildly profitable, but we're profitable and we live within our means. But yeah, it's a small restaurant. I think that's a big part of it right there is also living within your yeah, means. Yeah, live within your means. And like we also, you know, we're not buying foie gras and caviar. And when we get beef, it's not New York strip. We're getting like culotte and brisket and tongues and, you know. And cooking it right. Yeah, and cooking it right. And the vegetables, yeah, they're local but they're and more expensive, but it's cheaper than tons of protein and everything. So we're saving money by being vegetable forward. And you know, the, there are days where I'm like, man, it'd be really nice to have like two or three extra cooks, like prepping every day, like easing the weeds for the two line cooks. But we can't do that if we're going to be, you know, sustainable. And again, like I have to be in here, so I can't pay somebody to do the work I do. So I have to be in here working and prepping every day and making sure everything's ready to go. And, managing the place and doing the books and doing the, you know, all the correspondence and the emails and the social media. And so, you know, save money there. That's, yeah. you know, probably six figures off my line at the end of the year from not paying a marketing team, not paying extra staff to prep all the food, not paying extra front of house. Like our staff can make a livable wage because they have to bust their ass during service. Cause there's only three or four of them in the tip pool every night. Versus, so it's like a bartender and two servers. Yeah. We have two servers on the floor. Somebody hosts, which it's one of the servers. We don't have like a dedicated host. Usually our bar manager hosts two or three nights a week. Um, he's on salary. So there's a couple nights where, uh, aside from one night he gets to be in the tip pool with the other nights, he just works a shift because of the salary. And then it's a little less, a uh, number of people in the tip pool for those nights, which the servers like, and then some of them rotate through one or two shifts a week hosting also. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Bartender, two servers host, and then the kitchens, two people on the line and an expo and the expo washes dishes. So when you're working expo, it's not one of those cushy jobs where you fuck around with tweezers all night and pretend like you're doing stuff. You actually have to work too and keep up with the dishes. You have a pretty small menu too. Yeah. How does that help? Yeah, it helps. I mean, it's less inventory, less product to worry about. And for us, it's like, we prep a lot 
because we don't have a big staff to help with the food and there are a lot of components for all the dishes. So it's intricate, but we just wouldn't be able to handle more than that. Are you afraid to charge what a plate is worth? Yes. Yeah, for sure. How Uh, How are you handling that? I mean, I also like you have to be aware of your context too. Of like, I'm aware that we're in a neighborhood that's being, for lack of a better term, gentrified. Yeah, and you know you have to be aware of that. That like, I want this food to be approachable to everybody, not only to like the ultra rich who can afford fine dining. Yeah. So I don't want to be a place where you have to come and spend a hundred or two hundred dollars a head. You can come in here and get two plates of food and a cocktail for thirty bucks and leave. So how are you uh, finding that balance? What are you doing to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your staff, right? Yeah. But also not being out of reach for your, your market. It's it's a constant work in progress. But, you know, the way I look at it now is like we, we cost all of our dishes, we cost our drinks, our wine, whatever, to have a good markup. And that allows us the ability to know that we're profitable within a percentage range. So from there, it's, you know, filling the seats is important, like, getting those five to five thirty reservations to book on Wednesday nights too, not just on Fridays and Saturdays. Like, you know, the more we can turn the better, but you know, we're right now we're at a good point. Like our food cost is like 20%, you know, like we're making money in a percentage. And from there, it's just finding the right volume without being more than we can handle to sacrifice quality. Do you have a target for profit, a percentage? Yeah, I mean, I try to, like, most restaurants are like, if you're 10% profitable, that's great. I'm like, I'd like to be more in, like, the 30% range, yeah. you know? Are you hitting that? We're getting close. That's I mean, good, you man. know, it's going to be another couple of years till I pay back the investment. Yeah. But once that's all done, then it's like, I don't have any partners. Yeah. I don't have any other equity holders. Like, there are times when I wish I had a partner to help yeah. with everything. But at the same time, it's like, I'd never have to deal with that shit. I just but, but, can I mean, do whatever I want with this money once we're ready to. It's second and third concepts, you know? Yeah. We started this conversation earlier talking about the importance of taking your profit first, right? And I think that that's the solution to this is figuring out what your target is. If it's 15% or 20% or closer to 30%, reverse engineer what yeah. you need to do to get that. And don't be don't feel guilty for taking care of yourself. And yeah. I think that what's happened over the past like 50, 60 years is that like the industry, the food industry has been morphing and it's like a, a frog in water. We've been slowly cranking up the heat on this frog mm-hmm. to the point where it's boiling. We're dead yeah. because of all the corners we've been cutting. And now the perception of the value of food is so low Yeah, and that the, we're trying to bring, we're trying to in- inject integrity back in, into food, but food done right costs money. Yeah. And I think that it, we we need to educate the consumer. Well, because they they're always focused on what's on the plate too. It's yeah. always like this is a small portion size is like a common you know gripe for Which, mostly people who don't get it with this type of food in general. But so you're not paying for the food that's on the plate exclusively. Like yes, you're paying for the food, but you're also paying for all of these people's health care. Yeah, you're paying for our exorbitant power bill. You're paying for commercial insurance. You're paying for workers' comp. You're paying for yeah. all this stuff. How much of that food doesn't get eaten? By the way. Uh, usually none of it. We have, we have pretty good, like clean plate club. That's what I'm saying. How much food gets thrown away in the past? You go out to eat and your plate's overflowing with French fries. Yeah. It's it's crazy. And you're just like, I'm not going to finish that. Yeah. I heard our stat like 50% of all the food produced in this country is wasted. wasted. Yeah. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. Including what's grown. Yeah. So like we have a fucked up relationship. Yeah. It's true. And I think that if it's going to change, it's going to come from the people who serve it. Yeah. You're right. You know, so anything else we haven't talked about, 
before we we ask the last question, go to the speed round. I think that sounds good. We've been pretty so thorough. The last question is an echo of our mission statement to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Uh, on that note, uh, what do you think? Where are we now, and how can we go into the future intentional, uh, conscious, aware? Like, How do we go together into the future better? I think it's a, about people asking themselves what they want out of it. It's like you know the golden rule kind of thing, like treat others as you would want to be treated. What do you want out of a job? Like if you were an employee at your restaurant, what would you appreciate? What would you value? What would you be looking for? And if you open a place that can't provide that for your staff, then you just go close your place and find something else to do. Awesome. Great stuff. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out the speed round. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Goofiness. I love it. What is your biggest weakness? <laughs> Maybe goofiness again. <laughs> Slave to the goofiness. Uh, Strengths are often our biggest weaknesses. Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe like working too much. Yeah. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team. Are you an asshole? Hmm. How do you find out? I, it shows itself sniffing. pretty quickly. <laughs> it shows uh, itself pretty quickly. What is your biggest challenge today? Uh, Wednesday and Thursday before 7 p.m. dinner reservations. <laughs> <laughs> How are you overcoming it? Uh, honestly, I try to guilt people on social media a little bit more every now and again and just be like, if you don't ever eat on non-weekend nights before seven o'clock explain yourself to me (laughs) uh what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner that's a good question i totally just jumped two questions too i'm not sure why i did that oh yeah no no i mean i still think a kitchen confidential i still think is essential reading for everybody to at least learn like what to avoid or not to do yeah um i don't know honestly i don't have a we can roll a great down. answer for 
for it. Like, yeah, beyond that, I just think that's an essential one for, for, for sure. every restaurant person to read. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Yeah, the old golden rule kind of thing. It's like, again, don't be an asshole. What's one way you go above and beyond what's expected from the guest? Um, I mean, maybe like answering their stupid inquiries that they could already figure out if they just read something on <laughs> my Instagram DMs at 1230 after I've been working for 16 hours and just got home. What's the most annoying question you've been asked? Um, there's a... F- oh, there's when a are you open? Yeah, like any of the any of those things, like yeah, those are always pretty annoying. Like I had one person the other day, like we had a, a merch drop and we do it every quarter and the merch is available online and uh we don't carry any inventory in sight, it's all like made to order. So you just like go to the website, click what you want, and it's made to order, shipped directly to you, it takes like two or three days, shows up at your house, whatever. The posts always say like we do not hold physical inventory, you have to order online. One guy sent the post to me in my messages and I was like what is this about and then he was like oh sorry didn't mean to like send it to you just wanted to ask is it going to be available in the restaurant and it's just like could have just read the post you sent to me <laughs> Says it, you know <laughs> like yeah that opening hours uh people asking like what's your favorite dish to cook is something that i think every chef hates probably it's just like it's just a dumb fucking question oh that was my next question yeah no i'm just kidding I never <laughs> your asked that question. <laughs> it's just like i, don't, I never asked that question my listeners can contest i never asked that question my favorite thing to cook is whatever you're gonna buy yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah sorry i forgot about the eggs no, one more delivery you're fine. hey man the eggs are here the next question i have for you is what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough uh pay their staff well what is one piece of technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on profitability, efficiency, uh, communication, anything along these lines? It's not recent, I guess, but QuickBooks was helpful, like getting organized in that sense. I did everything manually before with like essentially QuickBooks, which is in my own spreadsheets, which was fine and kept track of things, but it's really nice to have the ability to like decipher through things quickly, the, yeah. like categorize things i need to look up this one category or subcategory of expenses from this window of time yeah. real quick like, it makes outsourcing to to an accountant easier too yeah exactly. you have the tools for them and like the language they speak exactly uh quickbooks online or quickbooks yeah quickbooks online okay i have whatever the cheapest subscription is <laughs> i have quickbooks but quickbooks for kids uh and what is your favorite feature of QuickBooks? This is a question, a follow-up question I'm trying to... What the favorite feature of this tool? I mean, for me, like, the my favorite thing is just being able to, like, uh, eliminate any other variables to, like, zero in on exactly one type of thing I'm looking up from any range, like the search features and, like, how many filters you can put through. That's, for me, the most important thing. Awesome. All right, this is the last question. It's a doozy. You're probably not going to like it. You're probably going to do an interview in, like, a couple of years, but this is the worst question ever. <laughs> Never ask me this question. But if you got the news, you're leaving this world tomorrow. Uh-huh. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants will be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Trust your gut. One. Don't be an asshole. Two. It's just food. I've loved this conversation, Chef Jarrett. You've been great, man. Thank uh, you. It's been a pleasure. I try to find all my guests by having my current guest tell me who they respect and admire. Yeah, it's like how I hire. Yeah, exactly, yeah. man. Word of mouth is yeah. the best way. It's how we inject integrity in this podcast yeah. and keep it above and beyond. Uh, so who do you respect and admire and believe and make a great guest in the show? Who should I talk to? Um, Atlanta-based people, definitely. If you can get Ryan Smith on the hook Ooh, for a little bit. I was hoping bit, you'd say Ryan I would Smith. love to hear what he's got to say. 
um, a restaurant close to us, Talat Market. It's right around the corner from here. Parnas. Uh, How do you spell T A L A T. Talat Market. Talat Market. Yeah. And um, Parnas and Rod, Parnas. two chefs. Beautiful. Parnas is P A R N A S S. Got it. And Rod, R O D. I got that one. Beautiful. Uh, thank you so much, man. If we want to connect with you, uh, maybe we want to come work for you. Maybe we have a question about your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we want to come eat here. What's yeah. the best way to do that? Uh, Instagram has just about everything you would need. There's a contact button to send us an email. There's the hours listed. There's a link tree that has the link to the website, to the reservations or whatever. So that's ground zero hub for everything. That's the social media, uh, avenue that I like pay attention to. We have like a Twitter and Facebook, but I don't really like, I definitely don't monitor the Facebook thing. I never log into it. I only have it just cause you have to have it for the Instagram mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, so everything's kind of through the Instagram, but yeah, I mean, it's all there, like email address, everything. It's all, all and, available uh, through that. Little bear ATL.com is the website. And yes. One last question. Cause I meant to ask earlier, how old yeah. is Fernando? Oh, he just turned eight. Last, wow, yeah, two, boy. two Sundays ago. Yeah, I'm assuming he boy. is the little bear. He is the little bear. Yeah. yeah, and it's always funny on like nights where my wife comes up here to like pick me up with him, and we'll like sometimes stop outside if the weather's okay and have a drink. Is and, he a celebrity? You know, yeah, I mean, you can like <laughs> I always know when he's here whether I see them or not because like there's this hush that comes around. And you can tell everyone's like looking out the windows, like oh my god, oh my god, god. there's a Dad, feature, Mr. Fernando. <laughs> there's been a sighting. <laughs> or people who don't know the restaurant walk by and are like, look at this little bear, and it's like. <laughs> Yeah, no, isn't, isn't that funny? <laughs> Chef Jarrett Steber, my man, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. It. Thanks, man. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Jarrett Steber, for coming on, sharing your story, and being an inspiration. And I love this approach that Jarrett took to get to where he is today, uh, working for the best, uh, learning from the best, uh, associating your name with the best, and then starting where you can. And for Jarrett, that was with pop-ups. And I think this is a great way to develop your name, to develop your reputation, and to build your list, to get your brand started. And just slowly build over time and let cash flow and people determine your growth. That's exactly what Chef Jarrett did. And it's something that we should be paying attention to. Uh, Great stuff. Thank you so much, Chef Jarrett. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more podcasts just like this one coming at you, we need your support. There's a ton of ways you can support the show. One way, an easy way to support the show is by heading over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 950 and finding finding the link to take the survey. The more we understand about our sponsors, or sorry, the more we understand about our listeners, the better it will be for our sponsors. The more confidence our sponsors will have in sponsoring the show, and it will make our life a whole lot easier selling ad space. So again, head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 950. There'll be a link in the show notes to take that survey also, you can find the survey over at Instagram. Our link tree will have the survey in it as well. Uh, you can continue to support our sponsors and use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. And you can come hang out at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. We're beginning in the new year. We're going to have somebody every 
week, a minimum of, of at least one person every week in the network to be there for you, to be an ear, to, to offer you some advice. And we're going to have two segments to start. We're going to have Ask a Pro, where I'm extending an invitation to an expert in my network to make themselves available to answer your questions. And we're going to have peers, restaurant owners across the country who are doing exactly what you're trying to do. And there's strength in numbers. So join the network, be a part of the community. And then lastly, I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for the copy and editing. And thank you to Sam at Sab and Sam.com for the videography and social media. I can't do it without you guys. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.